0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at lifeLock.com/aware. Terms apply.
1: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, Simply Safe, Purple, Stitch Fix, Wondrium, Mint Mobile, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
0: Five years ago, in September of 2016, we released one of our seminal series, Skinwalker Ranch. It was the first topic we crossed paths with for Scott that short-circuited how he saw the paranormal world. I just thought it was a freaky place with a cool-sounding name that I wanted to know more about. We were still a little green back then when it came to storytelling, but to be fair, Skinwalker Ranch does not fit neatly into a narrative box. There was nothing we could do about that. One of the things we learned from that legend is that when an astonishing tale comes along, if it does fit perfectly into a story structure, well, then we're less likely to believe some of the aspects about it because that's not how these things typically work. As you'll hear tonight, Skinwalker Ranch seems to have a mind of its own and it's not prone to cooperation. For a long time now, we've had an expression on our show and those of you who've been with us for several years will recognize it easily. Everything is connected. Much to Scott's chagrin, it looks like I was the one who first used that phrase during our Oak Island series back in August of 2015. This all ties in together. That's another one of my big themes throughout life. All knowledge is connected. Everything is connected. Of course, there I was talking about the money pit on Oak Island. But even then, I always believe that everything truly is connected, often in ways that we can barely scratch the surface of understanding. Our Skinwalker Ranch series was based on the 2006 book, Hunt for the Skinwalker, co-authored by renowned award-winning investigative journalist and frequent host of Coast to Coast AM, George Knapp, and scientist Colum Kelleher, who holds a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Dublin. Knapp has been at the forefront of groundbreaking journalism relating to the UFO-UAP phenomenon for decades, and Kelleher was part of Robert Bigelow's National Institute for Discovery Science, or NIDS, assembled to conduct a rigorous scientific study of the strange happenings at Skinwalker Ranch. He was on the ranch for six years, spending over 300 nights there, and he now works for Bigelow Aerospace as a manager for life support systems. These two gentlemen are the reason the world is aware of Skinwalker Ranch at all, and now they've recently teamed up with former Defense Intelligence Agency program manager, James T. Lekansky, to release a new book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. Over the years, we've frequently worn out the metaphor of going down the rabbit hole. But even that idea isn't enough to take us where Knapp and Kelleher are guiding us now. Their new book aims to set the record straight on the now infamous program known as the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, an investigatory program that existed inside the Pentagon, laid bare on the front page of The New York Times on Sunday, December 17, 2017. What if that program was an offshoot of something much larger, something the world at large has not yet been made aware of? A program that was far beyond classifying military and UFO-UAP encounters? And what if that program somehow connected back to Skinwalker Ranch and the cadre of individuals at the center of not only acquiring it but studying it over the years?
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook and this is George Knapp.
1: OSAP was the largest, most ambitious UFO study ever funded by the U.S. government.
2: Join us tonight for a talk with George Knapp and Colum Kelleher on Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. we're back. That we are, folks. We hope everyone's holidays were wonderful and that you've all had a good new year. It's 2022 and we're off to the races again, aren't we? Mm. Things are a bit dicey for those of you here with us in the States, but we're optimistic that everything is going to get right again before too long. Oh, and just quickly, we'd like to say welcome back to Dave Gibson. You've been sorely missed. Yes, Dave. You know, the Legenders Lounge has not been right since you've left, my friend. We'll keep this housekeeping short, but there is some exciting news. We've really upped the ante on the Astonishing Legends YouTube channel, where over the holidays, I was able to add the first 93 episodes of Astonishing Legends there. Uh, We had already posted all of 2019, so now you can listen to every episode from 2014 to the end of 2017, as well as all of 2019. 2018 will be rolling out soon, and after that, of course... 2020 through the present day. So if you haven't already, now's a great time to subscribe to our YouTube channel and revisit those older shows. Indeed it is, folks. And another thing, we don't really have much
0: of a marketing budget, and although we're trying to get better at it, it's been a long time since we came to you hat in hand and asked you to tell your friends about us. So please, tell your friends about us. Now that we've added YouTube as a place to find us, there's really nowhere that someone can't check out Astonishing Legends if they've never heard us before.
2: Yes. So do us a favor and put the word out. Word of mouth is how podcasts succeed. Well, podcasts that don't have $100 million Spotify deals like certain people. Anyway, so tell mm -hmm. your friends how much you dig Astonishing Legends. It's going to be a great year at the show. So now's the perfect time to start listening. All right, man. Where do we start tonight? All due respect to everyone that's been on our show before. This might be my favorite (laughs) uh, discussion we've had with outside guests in the history of the show. This was such a get for us. I really do want to thank profusely Jeremy Corbell for connecting us with Mm -hmm. George Knapp and Colum Kelleher. Uh, They were looking to go on to a show and Jeremy recommended us to them. And uh, we just can't thank you enough, Jeremy, for doing that. (laughs) It it was really just, I'm just. Speechless, honestly. I really appreciate
0: it. For once, yes. Uh, No, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to recommend us for some strange, weird, paranormal reason he did. Yes. And those two gentlemen trusted Jeremy's recommendation, and they graciously gave their time to chat with us.
2: They didn't know us from Adam, you know. No, no. No no. idea who we were, so. Yeah, exactly. And a
0: few things are going to kind of blow your mind, maybe. So first of all, you got to read that book. Yes. If you're interested at all in the TV series that's been out for two seasons now, Secrets of Skinwalker Ranch, if you're interested in any aspects of (laughs) Skinwalker's UFOs, strange phenomena, the Uinta Basin, any part of it, this is a great follow-up to that book, and it really takes a look at, uh, well, then what are the administrative mechanics of dealing with something like this? And as Scott and I always say, uh, which we find uh, interesting on the show— when an authority takes something like this seriously, and that's what this book is about.
2: Yeah, folks, if you're watching Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, which I you know, I came late to the party on, but then I watched all of them in what seemed mm-hmm. like an hour. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> yeah, I was I, I really bingeable. enjoyed it yeah. more than I expected to. Uh, it's very fascinating. It's a very interesting series. It's unrelated creatively to Nap and Kelleher's new book, but it's all part of the big picture. And, and when you take this all together, you'll get a bigger sense of what's going on out at the ranch these days because it's still there. Right. It's still doing its thing which it's probably been doing a thousand years before we came along so
0: right and i know the series is a little controversial judging by the social media about it but what i will say is it shows you what it's like there you can read about it but this is the most extensive collection of video at the ranch so you really get a good sense of it whether you like cable reality shows or not it's good for that at least and i will say weird stuff does happen on camera
2: All right, before we dive in, one thing we do need to do is acknowledge something very significant. Um, 31 days after we recorded tonight's interview, Senator Harry Reid, a friend to both George Knapp and Colin Kelleher, passed away. Without him, tonight's show wouldn't have happened. He was also a close friend of Robert Bigelow. Uh, We can only imagine the loss that Senator Reid's friends and family feel, and we'd like to offer our condolences uh, not only to our guests tonight, uh, whom we haven't spoken to since he passed away, but to everyone who knew, admired, or worked with him over the many decades that he represented Nevada or worked as Senate Majority Leader. He did more to advance the topic of tonight's show than pretty much anyone within the U.S. government. So uh, from us, thank you, Senator Reid. Another person we want to mention is uh, one of the three authors of Skinwalkers at the Pentagon is not going to be on the show tonight. And as far as I know, is not doing any publicity about it anywhere. That's not his thing. His name is James T. Lekatsky. He is the additional credited author for Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, along with Knapp and Kelleher. And you're going to hear them referring to him tonight. Lekatsky was the program manager at the Defense Intelligence Agency, overseeing a program you're going to hear a whole lot about tonight known as AWWSAP. That's A-W-W-S-A-P. That stands for the Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Applications Program. This is not the program listed in the New York Times article that we've referred to many times on the show. That was A Tip, A-A-T-I-P. More on the abbreviations in a moment, but Mr. Lukatsky and Colm Kelleher, who join us tonight, were the two program managers for ASAP, Lukatsky overseeing it within the Defense Intelligence Agency, and Kelleher overseeing it on behalf of Robert Bigelow's BASS, B-A-A-S-S, or Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies. So watering that down a little bit, we've got Lekatsky overseeing it for the DIA, and we've got Colm Kelleher overseeing it for Robert Bigelow. That's just to really water it down. Lekatsky has a Doctor of Engineering degree, and you're going to hear Mr. Knapp and Mr. Kelleher referring to him frequently tonight. So we just wanted you to understand who he was, and he is not a guest on the show tonight.
0: No, and to that point of understanding what everyone's talking about in tonight's show... Now we're going to talk a little bit about the abbreviations. So even in the book, there's a long list of these. And even for us, it's difficult to follow, even though we've read both books and we're really immersed in the subject. There are a lot of abbreviations. And just because we know we're going to get emails about it, here's an explainer of the difference between an acronym and an initialism because they're two separate things, but they are both abbreviations. So this is from Reader's Digest, and I'm sorry, at the risk of being pedantic, I'm going to explain this, because I also found it fascinating. So what's the difference between an acronym, abbreviation, and initialism? Well, some people think these are interchangeable, uh, but that's a grammar myth, technically acronyms and initialisms are types of abbreviations formed in specific ways, so they don't technically mean the same thing. An abbreviation is a way to shorten a phrase, like Avenue, December, you know, for a month you just use the three letters, this and that. Acronym is a type of abbreviation that shortens a phrase by combining the first letters of each word in the phrase to form a new pronounceable word. So some examples would be NASA, uh, FOMO for missing out, LASER Scott, what is that? I'm putting you on the spot. What does Uh, that that stand for? I can't remember the S. I know it's
2: light (laughs) amplified something emitting radiation.
0: You're very close. I can't remember Uh, Maybe not for jeopardy. Although uh, something uh, does work
2: for that. Light emitted, light amplified something emitted radiation. No,
0: yes. Uh, (laughs) Here we go. If the the middle word is something. Exactly. No, it's light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Oh, I was yeah, so quite we very right. close, yes. Uh, and we all like to say SCUBA, we're not going to put you through that. Yeah. Uh, and then there's RADAR, which stands for Radio Detection and Ranging. So that's different, though, than an initialism, because an initialism is another type of abbreviation similar to an acronym, but not exactly the same. So initialisms use the first letter of each word in the phrase, but instead of combining the letters to form a new word, like with NASA, you pronounce each letter individually. Some examples here, VIP. DVD. Did you know that that stands for Digital Versatile Disc? You did in the past, but you probably forgot that.
2: No, I did knew you? it. I remember. Okay, then. And actually, good. I remember the original meaning of VHS, and it was not Video Home <laughs> System. It was no, vertical right. helical scanning. Just Very so good, sir. Know. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to explain just
0: a few of these, just so you'll know what everyone's talking about as we go through the interview here because these letters make a difference in what program is involved and who did what and who's paying for what, because you might think, well, who cares? It's all government stuff. Well, there is a difference in that some of them may have competing goals. And targets and what they share with each other. So, in the big scheme of things, it really does depend on who's financing what and for what reason. So, getting back to the list of abbreviations, which we will list on the webpage for this episode, uh, here's a few important ones you're going to need to know. As Scott said, ATIP or AWTIP, AATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, AWSAP, AAWSAP, Advanced Aerospace Weapons System Applications Program, uh, BAS, Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies. BIX. I'm not sure if this initialism was said as is by uh, one of our guests, but I do know that Colin McKelleher does Say Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies. He does mention that, so that's Bix. What I'm saying is, I don't know if he just says Bix, and we may think that he's talking about
2: ballpoint pens. It's just a quick aside, a <laughs> patented tangent. Since we're hearkening back to Skinwalker Ranch anyway, when we were filled with tangents, <laughs> right. oh, I dear. used to windsurf, and my first windsurfer was made by BIC and it was the Pen oh, Company. Yeah. How weird is that? They made windsurfers, and they're they're a French company, right? Yeah, I think so.
3: Speak.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Anyway.
0: Very good, sir. Merci. Well, here's another big one here, because this has to do with also what Knapp and Kelleher and Mr. Lekansky can tell you in the book. And that is the HIPAA Act here. And that stands for Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act because there's a privacy rule that goes with this, which they adhered to. As you'll hear in the interview, they had run this by like four governmental agencies just to get approval of what was said in the book. So this comes from the HHS.gov website, the Department of Health and Human Services, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And there's just a short explainer here of what that is. The HIPAA privacy rule establishes national standards to protect individuals' medical records and other individually identifiable health information collectively defined as protected health information, in parentheses, and applies to health plans, health care clearinghouses, and those health care providers that conduct certain health care transactions electronically. The rule requires appropriate safeguards to protect the privacy of protected health information and sets limits and conditions on the uses and disclosures that may be made of such information without an individual's authorization, The rule also gives individuals rights over their protected health information, including rights to examine and obtain a copy of their health records, to direct a covered entity to transmit to a third party an electronic copy of the protected health information, an electronic health record, and to request corrections. The reason I read all that is this phenomenon that we're talking about in a very global umbrella sense doesn't just come with looking at things or seeing things or hearing things or feeling things there are definite physical reactions, medical and not good ones that sometimes come with an experience like this. And people have to go to the doctor after these experiences. So what we're talking about here, though, is that this information, though, is protected. So the authors of this book can't tell you exactly what happened to these people other than what they wanted to divulge themselves. For instance, we don't know if Commander David Fravor, at the time, when he was involved in the tic-tac incident, if he experienced anything physical, medical, with his uh, experience, and that later on maybe he had something uh, uh, like a side effect to this experience. A lot of people do. That information is protected. So unless he wants to divulge that, it's illegal to publish that or make that publicly known unless he wants it to be. So that's the reason for the HIPAA Act there. All right, continuing on with just a couple more. NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Science, NIDS. RV, we often talk about that one, remote viewing or remote viewer. RV could be the person doing it. Uh, UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, Everybody should know that one, and that's about it. That's the uh, the end yes. of the use. So there's a ton of There's a ton more on yeah. the list,
2: but obviously we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna spare you because we've been doing this seven years, and we might have learned something along the way. If this was no, four years that. ago, we yeah. would have just read all of these. So, uh, <laughs> 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 well, I know we're we're
0: big nerds about this
2: stuff. I like learning about it. Hence
0: the explainer between initialisms and acronyms so you can go forth. But anyway, yeah. Okay. And from our years of experience, we also know what people are going to uh, ping us about, you could say, between initialism and acronyms. So heading that off of the pass. So Scott, what's next?
2: Well, I think the next thing to do is to ask Sarah to get this conversation rolling. I concur wholeheartedly, sir. All right, folks, we would like to welcome George Knapp and Colum Kelleher to Astonishing Legends, which I have to say is a true honor, considering uh, we've been around about seven years now. And early on, we did a series on Skinwalker Ranch, which was based on the first book that these two gentlemen put out. And it was a mind blow for me. So I am very, very excited to have you guys on the show. Why don't we start with you, George? We need to Tell our listeners a little bit about your background so they know who you are.
1: I'm an investigative reporter here in Las Vegas. I've worked uh, since 1981. I've been at KLASDB, chief of the I-team since 1995, done pretty well, won a lot of awards and accolades for stories unrelated to UFOs that we've done. A couple of years ago, we created a platform called Mystery Wire, which has been sort of the home or an archive of my stories over the last 30 years or so pursuing UFOs and related mysteries. I guess my claim to fame or infamy as Area 51. That was most, sort of my entry point to the, the UFO story, allegations about weird technology being tested and stored and stashed out there. And Bob Lazar, that led me down the, the path to a bigger, more mysterious universe of UFOs. It led me to Bob Bigelow and Harry Reid and Colum Kelleher have tried to approach UFOs and related mysteries as I would any other news story trying to separate wheat from chaff, what's documentable, what isn't. I host coast to Coast AM radio for the past 12 years on a couple of times each month. And I am proud to be the co-author with Colum Kelleher of Hunt for the Skinwalker and then Skinwalkers at the Pentagon with
2: Jim Lekatsky. All right, Colm, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
3: My background is cell biology and biochemistry. And I came over from Ireland with a potato in my pocket there about 35 years ago started in canada and worked my way in various areas of cancer research ended up in the united states in the early 90s in immunology research and i saw this bizarre ad in science magazine that was looking for people who wanted to explore the origins and evolution of human consciousness in the universe so naturally i jumped answered that ad was interviewed by Robert Bigelow and joined National Institute for Discovery Science in 1996 and was on Skinwalker Ranch for probably six plus years. After that, I uh, went to biotechnology company in San Francisco, worked there for four years, and got a call from Robert Bigelow again saying that there was a semi-classified program with an intelligence agency. I was starting up, and did I want to be involved? And I said, of course, I I want to be involved. So I left San Francisco, came to Las Vegas in 2008. I was the first person hired for the OSAP program. I was in charge of day-to-day operations at OSAP in Las Vegas. Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies was the company that was executing the OSAP contract And then since then, I've been a manager for life support systems at Bigelow Aerospace. So it's been a 25-year roller coaster ride of very strange stuff and also very technical stuff. And
2: that's what's most fascinating to me about your book, your new book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, an insider's account of the secret government UFO program. This book is filled with revelations. And this is what impressed me about Hunt for the Skinwalker as well. Both of these books were combining the scientific method with these things that a lot of folks sort of consider unquantifiable or very hard to nail down. And it seems like it takes a certain amount of courage academically to get involved in that because a lot of times when you start to, you get ostracized or people make fun of you or that sort thing, but you guys really both with nids and also what's happening here, it seems like you're really trying to apply a very rigorous standard to studying this kind of stuff. What's that journey been like for you? Like starting out, did you start out a believer in these kinds of things? Did the ranch convert you or were you already open-minded going in or was it more like, well, I don't know. It seems like you hear all these stories about folks who go out to the ranch. I don't believe, I don't believe. And then something happens to them and they're converted. What was that experience like for both of you? Really? what I'll start with you, Colm, on that one.
3: Well, when I joined National Institute for Discovery Science, I think I was already open-minded. I'd, I'd been aware of things like remote viewing with Dr. Hal Putoff. He was part of the Science Advisory Board of Niz. So I would say for about 10 years before I joined Niz, I was interested in looking at anomalies. I was always interested in anomalies because they're fundamental to the scientific process for even beginning and starting new areas of scientific research. And as, as being able to leapfrog other questions and being able to start completely new areas. So when I joined Niz, I was definitely in the mindset of utilizing the scientific method to apply that to anomalies. And that, that was everything from investigating cat, cattle mutilations to UFOs and everything in between. So I did have an open mind when I arrived at NIS, but it was the first time I had really done research outside the quote-unquote mainstream. I mean, I I had done a lot of immunology, cell biology, cancer research, but this was the first time I had branched out of that. And for you,
2: George, you had already kind of been doing all that work with Groom Lake. So by the time you got there, were you more open to the ideas or the stories that you were hearing about the ranch?
1: No, that kind of hit me hard. You know, when I started in the late 80s, the dominant paradigm at the time in the UFO world was these are visitors from outer space. They're coming to our planet. We don't know exactly why, but they're from somewhere out there and they're coming here to pursue their own agenda. And what got my attention is that there was a paper trail that I as a journalist could follow, a paper trail of documents where the government acknowledged behind closed doors that this was real, that there's solid evidence that it's real, that there are significant encounters that military units around the world had had and that they need to figure it out you know they're telling the public something else that appealed to me as a story a lying to the public and saying something else behind closed doors and that was a, a line of inquiry that i could pursue as a journalist i didn't know what ufos were or where they were from i still don't but you can't go out in the desert although i've tried hundreds of times sit there and wait for a ufo to show up because they're not predictable they're intelligent they have their own agenda but that's what I pursued. And it was, you know, I took all kinds of grief from journalism colleagues and some from the public and certainly from scientists about how worthless and goopy and what a waste of time this stuff is. But I felt that there was a legitimate story there and I pursued. And as I go around the country to talk to people who'd had close encounters, the experiences become weirder and weirder. I mean, it's not easy to put it in a box. These are sincere people who had a dramatic life-changing experience. And I thought that they were telling me the truth. So At that time, we started hearing about alien abduction cases, and my parameters sort of expanded. But I was not ready for what the revelations were at Skinwalker Ranch. I had no interest in trying to pursue what we'd call woo, poltergeist-type activity. I was interested in the mutilations, but Bigfoot, come on. I mean, UFOs are hard enough to be taken seriously. When you mix all these other phenomena in, poltergeist, trickster-type activity that we heard about at the ranch, it took a while to get my head around it, but I trusted Colum, Robert Bigelow, Hal Putoff, Kit Green, Jacques Vallée, the people who had been part of the NIDS Science Advisory Board. I trusted them. They're smart, a lot smarter than I am. So my uh, parameters sort of expanded the more I heard about Skinwalker. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. We're listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show.
2: It's such a fascinating story. And I've, I've always been curious about what Bigelow's really like. You, you guys have both worked with him so much. He obviously doesn't give a lot of interviews. But in working with him, do you have a friendly relationship with him? Or is it all professional at this point? Or is it, a, is it more of a, of a Skinwalker family?
1: Well, I can tell you my relationship is uh, is almost entirely personal. We're, we're friends. He and I became friends. Uh, he was one of the first people to call the news station after the series, the first series I did in 89 ended. And he was offering, hey, can I help you out somehow? So no, thanks for the offer. But you know, I work for a TV station. I think it would be different if I worked for him. I mean, I was a consultant to NIDS for a couple of months back in 95 era, but I think we've been able to be friends because I don't work for him. And he trusts my opinion, and I can speak freely to him because I'm I'm not an employee; I'm a friend of his. We we have had a friendship for a long time, so I get to see him as a little bit differently from other people who are close to him, including I think Column is friends with him too, but he also works for him, which is a different can
3: of worms. Yeah, it is. I mean, he is a very demanding employer. I mean, he's the epitome of somebody who has a large vision, and uh, in executing that vision, you really have to. Be very efficient and manage your time wisely and all of that. So he's a tough guy to work for. But the counterpoint to that is I can count on maybe one hand the number of people who are able to sort of generate an organization to study something and then achieve pretty well the top level of studying that. He applied that with NIDS and also with the OSAP program. He's funded. Consciousness Studies at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He's done so many things in terms of initiating programs, but he also has this way of making sure that only the best work survives. Mediocrity is not really acceptable in a Bigelow organization. I'll share this
1: with you. Bigelow is a a brilliant man. He is brilliant and driven, but he's also fun. I mean, he's a fun guy to be around when he's not on the clock and working, but he's incredibly focused, it's his money. He spent more money on UFO and related research than any person in the history of the world. And he wants things done his way. He wants them done that way. So he, he will crack a whip on people to get things done, but he's funded, I know in the early days, even before NIDS, he was funding research by the likes of Stan Friedman, Linda Howe, Bud Hopkins, John Mack. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that he funded that are actually the underpinnings of what we now know about the phenomena.
2: All those studies he's done, he's he's got all of that information. He collects all that. He pulls all that into various databases, right? Including the stuff that's happened both with the ranch originally, with NIDS and also with OSAP, which I, I do want to get to that. And that's another question I have for you, Colm, is, Internally, is Bigelow's operation compartmentalized or are you, you've been there for decades off and on, I guess, so are you read in on everything that's going on there that you, you have clearance for and what you can talk about and what you can't talk about and that sort of thing?
3: Well, in terms of the organizations that Robert Bigelow has been involved in, yeah, I have been read in with pretty well most of the initiatives. And during the, uh, the BAS era, we went through the security clearance process top levels of the OSAP slash BAS management were all assigned above top secret clearances. That was in collaboration with Defense Intelligence Agency. So all of that stuff I was, yeah, I was read into. I mean, there may be other aspects of what has happened with Robert Bigelow in the aerospace industry, for example, that I was not read into. But in general, in terms of National Institute for Discovery Science and OSAP, I mean, I report to Robert Bigelow directly. I always have. I've maintained a really good working relationship with him. I would say I see him several times a week. We brainstorm all the time. So I would say sort of over the the 25 years, we've had a very productive working relationship.
2: So let's get down to the story behind this book and what compelled you guys to write this book, which I know was tied up for 14 months, getting approval to, I guess, publish certain names and names you couldn't publish. That must have been painful waiting that long for it to get turned around. But the outset of the book seems like it's all about setting the record straight a little bit with regards to Atip. And what OSAP was, which people hadn't heard of until these revelations. So, could you briefly explain? And we obviously gonna direct people to your book, we're gonna have a link to it in our show notes, but can you give folks a little bit of an overview about what OSAP is and how that relates to ATIP, which everyone read about in this December 17th copy of the New York Times? (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> wow, you have the original copy. I have cool.
2: two. This one is the one that has notes all over it from the day it came out. And we immediately well, put out a couple of episodes on it. It's so crazy because we always, one of the things that we say on our show is everything is connected. And we had gone back and we were late. Your your book had been out for quite some time by the time we came along and did our series on the ranch, which was based on your book. And then this came out. And then after that, now we're looking at, you know, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon I never dreamed in the everything is connected way that you could be draw a thread through all these things. I thought these were separate paranormal phenomena. And it's interesting to me that there seems to be a connection. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about the specifics of what ASAP was supposed to do. You know, we have some questions about why ATIP or ATIP or however people pronounce the acronym was getting a lot of the information from the article. It was getting more attention maybe than it, than it should have in terms of what all what had been happening, Right. As it's stated in the book,
0: the New York Times in the December 2017 article opened the floodgates, but there are a few things that it got wrong. And, and this can happen, of course, with any, as you well know, news media outlet. Some confusion there about who was actually getting that $22 million in allocated congressional money. But I think what our listeners would like to know, why is it important that there's a distinction between tip and was the original and actual organization osap that was uh, doing the actual research why is that important to make that distinction other than just for a point of a clarification on as far as
3: administrative wise the main and fundamental difference between osap and atip was not only the names and the fact that 22 million dollars went to osap and not to atip was the scope of osap OSAP was was from the get-go designed to fundamentally get into not only the sensor-driven structure-based focus of UFO performance, but it was also designed to look at the other side of the coin, which is human effects. That is a fundamental difference from anything that ATIP was in any way associated with. ATIP was a small Pentagon program that looked at military UFO interactions, both East and West Coast. Whereas the design of ASAP from the get-go, as agreed by both Dr. Lekatsky and his team at DIA, and also the Bass organization in Las Vegas, we came to a meeting of the minds where we would not only look at the nuts and bolts aspect of UFOs, but we would also look at human effects. And that sort of opens up a can of worms Normally because it demands a lot of resources and a lot of people to do that. That is sort of looking at physiological effects, pathological effects, medical injury cases, psychological effects, and then all the way out to where people report paranormal effects. Very, very different situation from a small unit in the Pentagon that's interviewing military F-18 pilots that have had engagements off the East and West Coast we were looking at a much bigger scope. So the design of that whole program, as agreed to by the Lekatsky team at DIA and also at BAS, fundamentally jump-started a whole series of projects under the OSAP umbrella. And it actually defined the structure of the databases that were involved in collecting data and managing data. So right from the very, very bottom to the very, very top of OSAP. All of these aspects were built in to OSAP from the get-go. So it was a very, very different conceptual program than ATIP.
2: In terms of looking at the like the medical stuff, and you mentioned in the book, the HIPAA, which I understand there's not a lot you can say, but in terms of constructing all that and getting all that stuff together, and also looking at, I guess, paranormal aspects, and maybe you didn't use the word paranormal, but looking at that stuff, was that stuff that they, that they were expecting to receive for that contract, that kind of information?
3: The team that put together the back and forth negotiations after the contract was accepted, the team were fully expecting all of that. Yeah. Now, as you go up the chain of command at Defense Intelligence Agency, there were some people that started getting nervous. There's no doubt about that. But the original team, there was a large team involved with Lakaski. All of them were briefed into it. Lekaski supervisors were briefed into it. There was no sort of discrepancies in terms of the mission of OSAP. The mission of OSAP was fundamentally to look at UFOs. It was not advanced technology, it was UFOs. I'd like to jump in on part of that about the importance
1: of correcting the record. You know, that December 2017 story comes out, the New York Times, and even though they got a couple of fundamental things wrong, its impact was huge. I mean, it turned UFO world upside down. The Tic Tac video is released to the world it suddenly energizes the topic, makes it more respectable. It was a gigantic development. And I would never do anything to sort of discredit or diminish the impact of, of ATIP because, I mean, it's been tectonic, the changes that have been implemented. But the fact is that there would be no ATIP without OSAP. ATIP grew up as a corollary to OSAP. Those are people in the Pentagon working with OSAP as support functions. And when OSAP was gone, then they took the ball and ran with it. But OSAP was the largest most ambitious UFO study ever funded by the U.S. government. It only lasted two years. If it had been allowed to continue, who knows where we'd be on this topic. But they had 50 or so full-time employees, a couple of hundred subcontractors, way bigger than Project Blue Book or Sign or Grudge, immensely bigger than ATIP. ATIP's contributions are significant, but that would not exist without OSAP. It was had a bigger focus. It had bigger staff. As I said, if it had been allowed to continue, who knows where we would be. Tic-tac. That case changed everything. The fact that the video was released at the same time as the New York Times report, it made a huge difference. But that TIC-TAC case was not an ATIP investigation. It was OSAP. Column can tell you the story of how that organization, the Bass organization, got onto it. But without TIC-TAC and related and similar cases, by the way, that were investigated that have not been made public, this big splash that was made by that New York Times story would not have been possible. Although I'm close to Column and Robert Bigelow I was not part of OSAP. I was allowed to pick up bits and pieces about what was going on. And when I learned that the New York Times is going to be putting the story out, I was kind of miffed. I said, well, you know, look, I've been keeping this quiet for a long time. Why don't I get to break it? And of course, I was gently told by Bigelow, by Tom DeLong, and Senator Reid, you're not the New York Times. And I understood that. But later, in March of 2018, after the, the story had exploded, gone all over the world, in March of 2018, I got invited to D.C. Harry Reid invited me to meet with some people back east, and that's when I got the lowdown on what OSAP was versus ATIP and why the errors that have been reported were so significant, how big, how important this program was, and that the world knew nothing about it. So, yeah, we wanted to correct the record. Not everything that's been reported about ATIP has been incorrect, but there's some fairly significant differences, the main one being there would be no ATIP without OSAP.
2: Well, that brings me to the question about OSAP and why it didn't continue beyond two years, which I think the implication of your book was it was just a matter of funding. And it also, maybe it got to be a higher profile and, and that affected its future funding. What, what was the reason it didn't go on any further?
3: That was basically all of the above. There were a lot of political stuff happening at that time. The release of Senator Reid's letter that was requesting special access program status really sort of uh, raised the profile of OSAP right throughout the Pentagon. And there was a lot of sort of disquiet among various agencies and organizations within the Pentagon umbrella. So a lot more attention was uh, focused on OSAP. And a lot of that attention was not friendly. So at that time, by the end of uh, 2010, it was realized that Defense Intelligence Agency, plus a lot of other players in the game, decided that this potato was getting too hot, and their worst possible scenario was that they would end up on the front page of the New York Times. And guess what? In 2017, that's exactly what happened. But definitely an increasing level of nervousness, because once Senator Reid's letter had gone public, multiple different organizations got involved, and the end result was that it was decided to discontinue.
2: Okay, so this is an interesting excerpt that we wanted to share from mm-hmm. Knapp and Kelleher and Lukatsky's book. Uh, they gave us permission to share sections of the book. So I just want to read this is from the beginning of chapter 10. This is page 112 of the Kindle edition of the book. It's called Senator Harry Reid's Letter. By the end of May 2009, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid was a worried man. A few days previously, he had received a thorough briefing on the progress of the new OSAP-BASS effort from aerospace billionaire Robert Bigelow and the breadth and the scope of the investigative horsepower of the fledgling organization had astonished the senior politician. Given what he had just heard from Bigelow, Reed was concerned that Bass would get too high a profile at DOD, that's the Department of Defense, in the near future, and that the OSAP contract would be exposed and essentially unprotected from potential opponents at DOD. But there was another reason for worry. Over the years, Reed had caught various straws in the wind that both Russia and China were involved with and heavily invested in UAP-based advanced technology research programs. That chatter had intensified, and by May 2009, Reed was concerned that the United States was asleep at the wheel, that the mixture of bureaucratic fear, careerism and scientific conservatism at the Pentagon, was handcuffing the ability of the United States to make progress in exploiting UAP-based technology. In Reed's mind, there was a grave danger that China and Russia, who were not similarly handcuffed, would succeed in taking quantum leaps forward from exploiting UAP-based hardware and thus gain an irreversible technological upper hand over the United States. On June 24th, 2009, Reed took the bull by the horns and, in consultation with the intelligence community, drafted a bold letter to then Deputy Secretary of Defense William Lynn. A new unclassified nickname, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, AATIP, was created for use within the unclassified letter because it was decided, for security reasons, not to use the A-SAP acronym. So I just want to stop here for a second and say this is one of the things that's at the crux of skinwalkers at the Pentagon. It's explaining that the program that you heard about in the New York Times article and that so many people have referred to that Lou Elizondo was involved with, it was actually not the main program that was happening here. It was under the umbrella of a larger program called ASAP, okay? So coming back to the book, Reed's letter was carefully crafted to initiate the process of urgently conferring Special Access Program or SAP status to some of the more sensitive projects at BAS. That's Bigelow Aerospace again. The third paragraph of the majority leader's letter to Deputy Secretary of Defense William Lynn was very specific. Quote, in order to support this national effort, a small but highly specialized cadre of Department of Defense and private sector individuals are necessary. These individuals must be specialized in the areas of advanced sciences, sensors, intelligence, counterintelligence, and advanced aerospace engineering. Given the likelihood that these technologies will be applied to future systems involving space flight, weapons, communications, and propulsion, the standard management and safeguarding procedures for classified information are not sufficient. Even the use of conventional SAP protocols will not adequately ensure that all aspects of the project are properly secured. So as you can see, he's having a Um, a security concern here. Senator Reid closed his powerful letter with a statement that directly addressed his primary concern about the dangers that Russia and China were gaining a technological advantage over the United States through their exploitation of UAP-related hardware. Quote, ultimately, the results of ATIP will not only benefit the U.S. government, but I believe will directly benefit DOD in ways not yet imagined. The technological insight and capability gained will provide the U.S. with a distinct advantage over any foreign threats and will allow the U.S. to maintain its preeminence as a world leader, End quote. In the letter, Reed nominated his longtime senior staffer, Robert Bob Herbert, to be the official point of contact with DOD. Reed instructed Herbert to deliver the highly confidential letter to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, William Lynn. Herbert brought the letter to Lynn's office and following protocol, delivered the letter to Marcel Lettre the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Legislative Affairs at the Pentagon. Some time later, it transpired that the letter had been photocopied by unknown parties and copies given to people at the Pentagon, at the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, and at DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. The widespread distribution of Senator Reid's once-secret letter caused controversy. Among the surprised recipients of the letter was then Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence General James R. Clapper and Susan Jones, who at the time was a senior official at the Special Programs Office at USDI. That's Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Within a few weeks of the letter being circulated, a meeting was convened at the Pentagon, and in attendance were Lynn, Jones, Letra, Clapper, Bob Carlsberg, who at the time was a senior DWO official at Defense Intelligence Agency, as well as others. So the book goes further with more details about the aftermath of the letter being sent. We just wanted to share those components of it that were in the book. And I think that uh, that's why we acknowledged Senator Reid as we did at the top of the show. This was a pivotal moment in this particular journey that we're following this evening. All right, so Sarah, let's get back into our discussion with them, where they talk a little bit more about the aftermath of what happened with the letter.
1: The one thing that the book does that Colm and Jim Lekatsky were able to paint is this picture of all the skullduggery inside the Pentagon, who the players were, what side of the field they were on, and how they interacted and how the forces came together to kill that program. Again, as I said, if it had been allowed to continue, who knows where we would be. But it's like a story of uh, like all the president's men, all the inside players who were involved in this and ended up killing
2: do you guys have a sense, or does anyone have a sense of how Senator Reid's letter got leaked? Was that just a bureaucratic mistake, or was that an intentional spanner in the works?
1: We think it was intentional, and it had the effect that the person who leaked it probably intended: is that by bringing attention to it, telling uh, insiders and higher ups in the Pentagon just how weird the research was getting, it poisoned the well, right,
3: Colin? Without actually going back and asking the person who leaked the letter, but we have a pretty good idea who who it was and why it happened. I would say that there was an intent to raise the profile so that other people could look at this. Yeah, I would say it was probably intentional, but without getting people on the record and all of that, I I can't close that loop.
2: So do you think that was financial or this is all too woo-woo, we're wasting money, or is there any reasoning behind that, that you can divulge?
3: If you look at the history of UFOs and government, I would say there are four fundamental horsemen of the apocalypse if you want to look at it like this from the perspective of how the United States government has treated UFOs. Number one is fear. There's a tremendous level of fear in the United States government. Second thing is careerism. Is the UFO topic going to harm or is it going to elevate my career? And I can leave you to answer that question. Third fundamental part of this is is fundamental Christianity. There's a lot of fundamentalism throughout the United States government, both at the level of the intelligence agencies and elsewhere. And there's a direct uh, negative correlation between UFOs and fundamentalist Christianity. And the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, of course, is incompetence. Individual people in the United States government are brilliant, but in terms of groupthink and how a program like a UFO program can progress, It's very, very difficult to progress in the face of those four hurdles. It's very difficult. Let me add this. Since the New York Times story and all the subsequent
1: coverage, 60 Minutes and others, have sort of made it more respectable to look at this topic, you've seen this parade of former high-level intelligence officials, agency heads, who've come out and said, yeah, we, we really do need to look at this. This is a serious matter. It might have national security implications. You can figure out who I'm talking about, but there's four or five of them that have come forward. They had a much different opinion about this behind closed doors when Column and Robert Bigelow are trying to keep this program together.
3: You know, I could add that you can already see the level of dysfunction with respect to UFOs. If you look on the one hand, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand's amendment on what a, a future UFO program might look like compared to the recent announcement from Kathleen Hicks about where the, the new UFO program is going to locate, you can see a sort of a very, very broad spectrum. And in the middle of that spectrum of the four horsemen of the apocalypse I've just talked about, I mean, you've got, on the one hand, a very enlightened, a very sophisticated analysis of what a UFO program would look like that's inherent in, in Kirsten Gillibrand's amendment. And then on the other hand, you've got this announcement from Kathleen Hicks that is obviously counterproductive.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask about that. That was only three days ago as we're recording this. Uh, in, In fact, let me share that memo with our listeners. All right, November 23rd, 2021, from the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Memorandum for Senior Pentagon Leadership, Commanders of the Combatant Command's Defense Agency and Field Activity Directors. Subject. Establishment of the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. Talk about initialization for us. This one is going to be Mm. (laughs) A-O-I-M-S-J. All right. Uh, Unpronounceable, as you said. The presence of unidentified aerial phenomena in special use airspace, designated in accordance with 14 CFR Part 73, represents a potential safety of flight risk to air crews and raises potential national security concerns. Accordingly, I direct the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security to establish the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group to synchronize efforts across the department and with other federal departments and agencies to detect, identify, and attribute objects of interest in SUA, that's special use airspace, and to assess and, as appropriate, mitigate any associated threats to safety of flight and national security to provide oversight and direction to the AOIMSG, (laughs) I established Hmm. the Airborne Object Identification and Management Executive Council, or the AOIMEXEC. Try saying that one. The USD... will be the lead DOD official responsible for management of this process, will co-chair the AOIMEXEC, along with the Director of Operations, joint staff, and will invite principal-level participation from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Resourcing for this requirement will be addressed in the program budget review process. The Director, AOIMSG, hereafter referred to as the Director, will synchronize the activities among the Office of the Secretary of Defense and DOD components and with other U.S. government departments and agencies to minimize safety of flight and national security concerns associated with UAP or other airborne objects in SUA, special use airspace. The director, with support from the OSD and DOD component heads, will address this problem by standardizing UAP incident reporting across the department identifying and reducing gaps in operational and intelligence detection capabilities, collecting and analyzing operational intelligence and counterintelligence data, recommending policy, regulatory, or statutory changes as appropriate, identifying approaches to prevent or mitigate any risks posed by airborne objects of interest, and other activities as deemed necessary by the director. Additionally, the director, in coordination with the OSD and DOD component heads, will identify requirements and recommended changes in doctrine, organization, training, materiel, leadership, personnel, workforce, facilities, and resources to be brought to the AOIMEXEC for review. Consideration and implementation as appropriate by the applicable DOD component head. Don't worry, this memo is almost done. Effective mm. immediately... <laughs> the AOIME XCC, in coordination with the OSD and DOD component heads will manage the transition of the current UAP task force to the AOIMSG, blah, 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 so on and so forth. And then the mm. rest of it, the rest of it is all initializations. I'm not going to, I'm going to spare you. <laughs> Signed Kathleen Hicks, Director of National Intelligence. That was November 23rd. This wasn't that long ago, folks.
0: Well, the big problem with all of this, as I see it, is that you, you've gone about it backwards. First, you should start off with a cool name and then make the letters try and fit that. Yeah, they're not doing that. The program could be Star Lord or Buck (laughs) Rogers, and then you try and get the letters right. Yeah, instead of,
2: because that's just, you know, that doesn't roll off the tongue. No one's going to remember that. So I know that's not the point, but there you go. All right. Well, so what do you guys make of that memo, George? What do you think the message is there?
1: The message is you don't need to pass this in Congress. We don't need to create a new program as outlined by the senator from New York. We're setting this up already. We're going to dig into it. But it's very clear that the scope and function and purpose of the program that's now been established by the Pentagon is much different from the kind of program that Column ran and which any reasonable program should do, is having a broad-based approach, follow the evidence where it leads. Don't limit it to just military encounters over military ranges and cases that can be detected on sensors, because you have to look at, and a much broader picture, how this impacts people, which is what OSAP did and what. Senator Gillibrand's program would do if it's passed. Yeah. It looks like it's trying to undercut congressional support for an ambitious program, uh, saying, we've already got one. We don't need that legislation. Pentagon will push back
3: on this. They're going to fight tooth and nail. If you look at the actual text of Senator Gillibrand's amendment, and you look at phrases like field research teams, and uh, you can also see things like adverse physiological consequences, will be studied, medical effects. These people actually were were serious about putting together a program that actually is mirrored in Appendix 2 of our book, in which there's a full line item by line item sort of discourse on what a, a future program would look like. Well, the nearest parallel that I can see that has been released by the United States government is Kirsten Gillibrand's amendment. It certainly is nothing to do with Kathleen Hicks, recent localization of a program in the middle of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. I mean, I don't think I need to say more. <laughs> Going off of
0: what you have both just said about the higher-ups, the upper levels of the brass, getting nervous, and what I noticed in reading the book, there's a philosophical difference between, and maybe a jumping-off point or a, a speed bump, between what you just described ATIP's mission being in that it's more geared towards military personnel and what they've experienced and what the original mission statement of OSAP was, is that at some point, would it be fair to say that what makes people nervous is there's a nuts and bolts approach to studying the phenomenon. And that's fine because it's craft. Perhaps it's flown by some kind of extraterrestrial entity. But what OSAP seemed to be Concerned with, and and as well, this is coming from Bob Bigelow, is that there is a major and fundamental and just profound connection between consciousness, human consciousness, and the UAP phenomenon. It may even be a spiritual connection. Would it be fair to say that's what starts to make people nervous once you start to really dive into these connections?
3: I would totally agree with what you're saying. When ASAP did start, we had Jacques Vallée, we had Hal Puthoff, we had John Schuessler, who has a long, long history in the UFO topic, Robert Bigelow. We had a few other people who were involved in brainstorming what this program would look like. And we were looking at the 75-year history of the UFO program, starting with Project Sign, and, and even before that, but I mean, fundamentally, Project Sign, Project Bridge. Blue book, and then all the way through. So there was an attempt to um, incorporate as big a picture as possible. But you're right. I mean, once you start looking at human effects of UFOs, you do open Pandora's box into effects that sort of bleed into psychological effects. People are talking about their dreams being affected. Then people start talking about strange things happening in their surroundings. So. Once you look at human effects, you start opening those doors. But if you confine only to sensor-driven data, UFO performance, UFO propulsion, reverse engineering propulsion systems, and all of that, then you can close that door and you can keep it nice and clean. But the real question is, are you really going to address the UFO mystery by looking purely at sensor-driven data? And you're not. You're
1: not going to answer it in the lead up to the publication of the book, we've both privately and publicly been beaten over the head because we're willing to look at the big picture of what OSAP studied and the weirdness at, at Skinwalker Ranch. We didn't make that stuff up. It happens. It it comes along with the territory. There are those who are very much pro UFO in favor of a a new program. But if the program only looks at military encounters, it's not going to answer this stuff. And they, they see us as a menace, that we're somehow threatening to rock the boat and destroy the good name of UFO research in talking about other weirdness that's always been on the periphery of UFO events. You can't just ignore it. That's what happens. And so if all these proponents want to do is get a program passed, fine. There's now enough impetus that that could probably happen if it limits itself to UFOs, nuts and bolts, sensor type cases. But the fact is, if you want to get the answers, you have to look at the big picture and follow the evidence where it leads. And I'm sorry that we're an embarrassment to some of those pro UFO people, but that's the facts of the facts.
2: Coming back to the Tic Tac incident and Commander Fravor and the other aviators involved, does, does that mean that OSAP interviewed them about effects that they had, hitchhikers, dreams, things happening I haven't read about yet anyway, doesn't mean it's not out there, but has, is there information that was collected from that experience that has been shared or can be shared?
3: I know that the HIPAA directives are very, very strict. And, you know, as George said originally, we did put this book through 14 months of review. Four separate agencies looked at at what was in this book. And, you know, a pretty clear line was drawn in terms of HIPAA related medical issues. And, you know, there are no go areas in terms of especially active duty military people, people who are still working for the United States government. And there's no way that we can go beyond what's in that book. We were told pretty unambiguously that we cannot go beyond in terms of getting into medical effects, especially with active duty military people and United States government currently under the employment of the United States government. And, you know, I'm still operating under a minimum of two NDAs that I can't break those. Understood. In relation to that, medical effects...
0: And George's statement earlier here about there's a comfortable factor or level to the military approach, which is, let's see if this is a threat first to our defense capabilities and how we may capitalize on that or take this technology and use it for ourselves. But when it comes to the consciousness aspect, they don't care as much, maybe not as much as uh, the Russians or the Chinese do and there's studies with this. Would it also be fair to say, though, that even if you try to pare that down to the nuts and bolts, the technology, lift, propulsion, the 12 items of the the project's scope, would it be fair to say that the phenomena itself prevents you from doing that, and that the phenomena is not going to be ignored with its own woo-woo, and that you might try to just pare this down to the science, but there's going to be so much high strangeness associated with this, that it's almost an element of the trickster nature of the phenomena, and that you can't ignore it. It's not going to let you. Would that be accurate? I would say, yeah. Some of the feedback, again, that we've been getting behind
1: the scenes from pro-UFO people is, oh my gosh, look at those guys. They're screwing everything up. They're investigating ghosts. Well, no, OSAP didn't investigate ghosts. It was built to be a UFO program. But places like Skinwalker Ranch There was activity that we have described in both of these books as sort of poltergeist-like. We don't think that they necessarily are ghosts, but they act like what we know of ghosts, trickery, things moving around on their own, doors and windows closing and slamming, things like that on their own that people have associated with poltergeist. So I can understand that folks at the Pentagon might be nervous if it seems like we're advocating that you investigate ghosts, but that's not it. We don't know what they are. Uh, Suddenly, UFOs are respectable, but anything outside those boundaries are not. In the book, Column wrote a great section about Kenneth Arnold, the first major UFO case of the modern era. Kenneth Arnold sees these things flying over Washington state, and the whole UFO world knows about that. Very few people know that Kenneth Arnold then had things happen in his home that are very much like trickster poltergeist type activity, things moving around, very scary stuff that happened after that sighting. Do you ignore that? Do you only look at his sighting and ignore what what happened to him personally? what continued to plague him, the kinds of stories that we tell in the book about the hitchhiker effect. Serious government intelligence operatives go to the ranch, have an experience, and then they take it home. We didn't make that up. It happened. It's still happening. For some of them, it's still happening 10, 11 years after the encounter at the ranch. Do you ignore that? You're not going to get to the answers and get to the bottom of this if you do.
0: Hey, I'm Brady, and while I'm not looking for Bigfoot in the Utah mountains, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show.
2: Okay, so this is another part of the book we wanted to share. This is from uh, chapter one of the book. It's called Chapter 1, July 2009. This is on page 23 of the Kindle edition of the book. The sun had almost completely set behind Skinwalker Ridge as the three comrades set off on their walk towards the west end of the ranch. They were in high spirits as they sauntered along the dusty trail, joking about some of their past missions and reminiscing about what had brought them to this strange place. They had flown from the East Coast the previous day and were on Skinwalker Ranch in Utah at the invitation of Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies, or Bass. All three were seasoned warriors who had spent time in the war-torn reaches of Afghanistan and Iraq. Jonathan Axelrod was the acknowledged leader of the trio. A senior aerospace engineer in naval intelligence, his career had already spanned an upward trajectory and his calm demeanor and infectious sense of humor enabled him to move easily in Pentagon circles. That same year, 2009, Axelrod was also the lead investigator of the now infamous Tic Tac case that had embroiled the Nimitz Aircraft Carrier Strike Group in a series of cat-and-mouse high-stakes games off the coast of San Diego a few years previously. The so-called Tic Tac had outmaneuvered and outperformed multiple F-A-18 Hornets, leaving these top gun fighters from the Nimitz in the dust. Axelrod had personally interviewed all the pilots involved in the incident, as well as the several radar operators on the USS Princeton and others on the USS Nimitz itself. At the time of Axelrod's arrival at Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, he had not yet completed the Sub-Rosa Nimitz investigation. He had no inkling that his covert UAP investigation would explode onto the front page of the New York Times in December of 2017. Axelrod was well-versed in investigating anomalies, utilizing a thoroughly professional approach. His demeanor instantly put skittish military aviators at ease. He reassured them that there would be no negative career consequences for their testimony. Axelrod was and is the consummate military professional. But on that serene evening on Skinwalker Ranch, he had no idea what he was about to run into. Darkness had now settled in on the ranch. When Axelrod playfully pushed his best friend Jim Costigan away from him, Jim staggered slightly and almost dropped the night vision scope he had been using. Costigan cursed his friend humorously. Costigan was a Marine, had served in Afghanistan on a few hairy missions with Axelrod, and they knew each other very well. After a few more minutes adjusting the optics, Costigan finally got the Generation 3 ITT night vision scope to work to his satisfaction and silently handed it to David Wilson to check out the now-dark surroundings. Wilson, tall and lanky, was the most taciturn of the trio. His marine background had crossed paths with Costigan on numerous overseas missions, and both were experts in the field applications of a wide variety of sensor technology. One of the reasons the trio had been invited as subject matter expert consultants onto the Skinwalker property was to begin applying their sensor expertise and tracking the mysterious presence that had outsmarted dozens, even scores, of witnesses over the previous decades. Skinwalker Ranch had gained in notoriety over the years since the 2005 publication of the book Hunt for the Skinwalker, which was the first definitive account of one of the most intensive scientific studies of anomalous phenomena in history. Axelrod, Costigan, and Wilson all had read the book. They were straight military men. They were open-minded, but skeptical of the reports from the ranch. Axelrod had once casually mentioned that the Skinwalker book was one of the favorites for military and intelligence community folk as they relaxed around the pool in the green zone in Baghdad during the Iraq war. All three were seasoned operatives who were equally comfortable out in the field or in briefing rooms in the Pentagon. On that warm July night in 2009, As they strode confidently on the track leading west on the ranch, they were already scoping out the Badlands terrain for places to deploy their technological assets. About a half mile into their hike, the temperature suddenly dropped like a stone. From 75 degrees, the air was now 20 degrees cooler. All three stopped and silently looked at each other. There was no wind blowing, the air was still, and the zone they were standing in gave them a deep chill. Axelrod silently raised his hand and motioned backwards. All three walked backwards, and within a couple of yards, the temperature had gone back to the high 70s. Axelrod motioned forward, and the three moved silently in unison. Again, they walked into a wall of coldness. Weatherfront, muttered Costigan, probably, answered Axelrod, and again, the trio retreated. Again, they exited the wall of chilled air into the warm night. Three times they repeated the maneuver, and three times the sharp boundary that defined the wall of cold air remained in the same location. Let's move on, Axelrod said, and the trio resumed their journey west. Costigan began scanning the environment, and all around him, the bleak Badlands landscape looked eerie and night vision green. Thirty yards further on, all three began to feel anxious, and as they walked further, the anxiety deepened and turned into fear. No one said anything. They continued on their journey, but every step they took, their fear seemed to escalate. There was no external reason. No one wanted to be the first to mention the alarm they felt. Ten yards further on, the fear had escalated to mortal fear, and eventually Axelrod raised a hand and all three stopped. Do any of you feel that? Axelrod asked, his heart beating madly, the adrenaline surging through him. The other two acknowledged they felt intense alarm. All three looked around, a full 360 to find what was causing this nameless dread, a fear for their lives that was more intense than they had ever felt. Axelrod raised his arm and motioned forward. All three swallowed and slowly began moving forward. Again, the fear escalated. The three were sweating profusely. Wait, Costigan whispered hoarsely, and his trembling hand pointed directly westward on the track. Fifty yards ahead of him, the ghostly outlines of the three old homesteads were now in view, but Costigan was focused on something else. Directly ahead of the trio on the track, Costigan's night vision scope showed an oval area of blackness about 8 feet tall surrounded by the night scope's normal green color. It was as if, Costigan said later, all light had been extinguished in that dark oval shape. Costigan felt the black structure was radiating a menacing presence. Neither Axelrod or Wilson could make out anything definitive in the gloom, but as if in psychological agreement with what Costigan was seeing, They instinctively acknowledged that the source of their fear was 50 yards further down the track. At that point, all three felt close to their breaking point, each one convinced that continuing towards the dark oval shape would lead to certain death. Without a word, the three began to retrace their steps as if guided by the same direct order. Slowly as they walked back, the terror began to subside. As if on a rheostat, the further they retreated from the mysterious black oval shape on the track, the less fear they felt. After a hundred yards, the fear had left them. Silently, the three walked back to the command and control center trailer located on the east end of the ranch for the debriefing. A couple of years later, OSAP Bass Program Manager Kelleher interviewed Axelrod and Costigan separately about the events on the ranch that night. Both remained baffled regarding the source of the fear. And the interview confirmed that only Costigan saw the black oval shape through a night vision scope. The implication was That the oval structure could not be seen in the visible wavelengths, that's 400 to 700 nanometers, and had only been illuminated above 850 nanometers. All right, so that's the end of the excerpt I wanted to share. This goes on to talk about ongoing lingering effects for Axelrod specifically uh, and his family, which is something we're talking about tonight. In fact, some of the things that were happening for Axelrod were happening uh, not only with his family, but with his uh, children and then friends of the children. Let's get back to the discussion to talk about that a little bit. That's something I had a question about, and it never occurred to me to think of it this way until reading your book about the, the contagion idea, which I'm guessing, Colm, you developed that theory, I'm not sure, in terms of things getting connected to you and then passing on. It wasn't it Axelrod's children who had friends that they had not told what they had been seeing. And then, and then their friends came and said, Oh, we saw this the other day. What do you think about that? Like, how far have you gone with that theory? It's so interesting to me because I find myself, we've covered some creepy stuff over the years. I had like a, particularly weird experience at a haunted house, which people that listen to our show take a shot when I mention it. So I'm going to go ahead and say the Sally house, (laughs) but like, it was just crazy. And it was, it was life-changing event for, for me and for our whole team, really. It happened to everybody there. But my question to you is with this hitchhiker thing, because I find myself like reading your books, I'm finishing the book. I'm getting a little creeped out. Like even I'm out walking the dog, I'm creeped out about the book. I'm creeped, you know, or whatever. And I was Also trying to catch up on, you know, even though it's unrelated, Brandon Fugel's operation in that TV show. I'm looking at that. I'm just like, oh, my God. Speaking of HIPAA, you know, Tom on that show has the head injury, which he's clearly talking about on the show, which is a really frightening event. And I'm thinking based on my past experience at the Sally House, I'm like... I kind of don't want to go. Do you guys avoid the ranch? Because you, you, you guys talk about a little bit of a hitchhiker effect yourselves. Have you, have you had ongoing things? When's the last time you were there? How often do you go? Do you avoid going? I'm kind of thinking of avoiding going, even though I haven't been invited and I've never been. <laughs> so I'm curious how what that's like for you both personally.
3: Well, the last time I was on Skinwalker Ranch was with George, actually. And we were there a couple of days before Brandon Fugel took the property over after Robert Bigelow had sold the property. So the so-called hitchhiker effect, I mean, I have a background in virology. I've studied viruses for a long, long time. So it was pretty obvious, I guess, looking at the overall pattern of how a primary infectee, so to speak, on Skinwalker Ranch or elsewhere, because this is not just confined to Skinwalker Ranch but a primary infectee would travel 3,000 miles to their home all the way back to the East Coast, and their families would start experiencing this. And it was usually the families, the kids and the spouse, as opposed to the primary infectee, who would start experiencing all of this stuff. And then next thing, the school friends, and these kids were not talking about this. They were completely mum because it was so weird So they were not talking to their school friends, but their school friends would come up to them and say, I saw this weird creature outside the bedroom, my bedroom window the other night, and uh, I saw this blue orb flying past the window kind of thing. Not only that, but out into the neighborhood too, there were other features that were not put in the book where actually neighborhoods were also experiencing these kinds of effects. So in terms of epidemiological analysis, It is really crying out for a standard infectious disease model. And there is, you know, with coronavirus and all of the sort of horsepower that's associated with coronavirus modeling, it would be relatively easy to construct a program that could do some sophisticated modeling on this kind of an effect if the number of people was increased. And again, you know, that's the reason for Appendix 2 in the book where this kind of a program is laid out and it could be properly analyzed because you really e- need 50 to 100 cases as opposed to you know less than a dozen.
1: I was there with Collum in 2016, right at the end of the Bigelow era and got to meet Brandon Fugel, And he's given me sort of a standing invitation to come back anytime. I have been back to the ranch twice, working on a film project since 2016, but I've made other trips to the basin where I didn't go to the property. And I had told my wife pretty much, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not going to go back because the, the longer you're there, the better a chance is that you're going to bring something home. I, I did bring something home. Column did as well. Robert Bigelow did as well. We had a period where there were some really strange things happening to my wife. We had an, a period last week where there was a couple of things happened here. Low-level stuff. I'm not going to claim to have seen Bigfoot or anything, but low-level stuff that just kind of freaks you out. I have no real strong desire to go back. I think I probably will end up going back. Mr. Fugel has has made it clear that I can be there anytime. I'm just not trying to, I'm not sure I want to roll the dice, at least not right now.
2: Okay, we just want to do a little bit of background here on Lukatsky, who is, as we said earlier, the other author of the book, who is, is not on the show tonight. But this explains a little bit how he got involved with Skinwalker Ranch. It's a pretty fascinating, I guess, origin story for his journey. Uh, This is an interesting section from chapter five of the book that details a pretty remarkable incident in his life. So Forrest, why don't you pick this up on uh, page 59 of Skinwalkers at the Pentagon uh, there and and read these uh, next couple of pages through this experience he had?
0: Yeah, this is pretty interesting, and it has a tie-in to one of our recent episodes. So we're going to talk about that once I conclude here. After some internal discussion with his colleagues and superiors at DIA, Lekansky decided to take the bull by the horns. On June 19, 2007, he wrote that bombshell letter on official DIA letterhead to Robert T. Bigelow, asking to visit his Utah ranch for the purposes of, quote, "...developing a strategy on how my office, DWO, can characterize the potential threat aspects of the phenomena encountered in your research efforts, period." In the annals of ufology and anomalies, it is doubtful that any similar letter had ever been written by a high-ranking intelligence agency official to the CEO of an aerospace corporation proposing an official visit to a UFO hotspot to assess the technological threat potential of the phenomena on a place known as Skinwalker Ranch. The dry clinical prose of the letter belied an extraordinary audacity and showed that Lekaski was no ordinary intelligence agency bureaucrat. Lekansky was a man with the capacity and the vision to take risks. After a few weeks of discussions, Lekansky was in the air on his way to meet Bigelow in Las Vegas. The quiet, understated physicist intelligence analyst and the charismatic aerospace billionaire were a study in contrasts, but they formed a bond at that first meeting that would be game-changing in the years to come. On July 26, 2007, Lekansky and Robert Bigelow flew to Vernal, Utah the nearest airport to the ranch that could accommodate Bigelow's private jet. Within an hour of landing in Vernal, both men were walking on the property. The ranch looked its finest on this beautiful July day. The Russian olives and cedars were in full bloom, and the pastures were looking their verdant best. Bigelow and Lekansky sauntered on the property for a short while and then headed for the nearest building. At the end of the entrance to the ranch was a small picturesque dwelling which had been named Homestead One. It housed Jean and Richard Dietz, a husband-wife team who had diligently managed the ranch property on Bigelow's behalf since 1999. Bigelow had introduced Lekansky to the managers in the dining room-slash-kitchen of their house, which they had lovingly upgraded into a comfortable two-person home. Abruptly, Lekansky was transfixed by something behind where Bigelow and the couple were chatting. An unearthly technological device had suddenly and silently appeared out of nowhere in the adjacent kitchen. It looked to be a complex, semi-opaque, yellowish, tubular structure. Lekansky said nothing but stared at the object, which was hovering silently. He looked away, looked back, and there it still was. It remained visible to Lekansky for no more than 30 seconds before vanishing on the spot. About two hours after they had arrived on the property, Lekansky and Bigelow were driving back to Vernal Airport. Although conversing normally with Bigelow, Lekatsky's mind was racing. Here he was, a ballistic missile physicist, a senior analyst at the DIA without any history of encountering anomalies, and he had just seen a vision unlike anything he had ever witnessed in his life. Lekatsky confessed later that prior to that stunning vision, he had never seen anything unusual in his life. Yet within a mere 60 minutes of being on the Skinwalker property, he had seen clearly, in broad daylight, a technological device in the adjacent room within a few feet of where he stood. This was no blurry photo of a distant saucer in the sky. This was an in-your-face, up-close and personal apparition of some kind of technology. The fact that he, and he alone, of the four people in the room had seen it, was also not lost on Lekansky. What were the odds of something like that happening? Lekansky remembered reading that the NIDS team had spent hundreds of hours on the ranch and had encountered anomalies only occasionally. Yet here, he had seen a spectacular object a few feet away within an hour of setting foot on the ranch. Later, while researching for some approximation of what he had witnessed during that astonishing two-hour interlude on the ranch, he came across a photograph of the album cover of Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. There it was. The structure depicted on the album cover was not exact, but it was pretty close. Well, that was odd. (laughs) Imagine you showing up at this house. You're having a conversation with uh, the Dietzes who manage the property and Robert Bigelow. And by the way, I can picture this or how I picture this is uh, how it would appear on uh, Secret of Skinwalker Ranch with Brandon Fugel and the new couple that manages the ranch because you can see their house there. Just picturing that, just that thing hovering in the kitchen. I was actually wondering if that was the same house. It it must be, I would think. I would think so. Yeah, because I don't see any new major construction there. And certainly they've not fixed up the old uh, structures there. And that seems to be the house of the caretaker. So maybe that's it. There's another little... Quote, in the book, that's interesting, that starts off chapter five, the beginning, and this comes from Skinwalker Ranch Manager Jean Dietz, July of 2007. Uh, She says, the dozen crucifixes and crosses are just my decorating style. Odd, though, the cross in the bathroom just flew off the wall and across the hall this morning. (laughs) So stuff's happening all the time, depending on who it is, because it's like it's showing you something, but not to everybody, only certain individuals. And Scott, do you know the now the tie-in between Mike Oldfield's tubular bells and uh, one of our recent episodes?
2: Yeah, well, only because you told me what you were going to say. If you'd asked me this question and I didn't know, I would not know where you're going. But I agree with what you're about to say. How's that for see. uh, looking into the future? Yeah. All right.
0: Well, a lot of people who are familiar uh, with the movie and the soundtrack and uh, having grown up in the 70s will recognize it is the iconic theme to The Exorcist. Yes. Do, 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 do. I can't hum it yeah, correctly, yeah, don't, but uh, no, you know no. what I'm talking about. Yes. You, you, everybody knows that song. It's all over YouTube. So go, uh, go check that out. But that's what he was talking about. On the album cover is an illustration of this. Chrome I, I love... Sequ- I call it yeah. a chrome noodle. Yeah. <laughs> a, chrome pretzel, whatever. It, yeah. yeah. A bell or a, a musical instrument that you would tap and it makes a lovely sound. So I love the idea and discussion of secret machines That's another big thing on Jim Harold's campfire is a lot of people have seen weird machine type things just appear for whatever reason and then kind of vanish. That
2: seems to be a phenomenon in and of itself. Indeed. Okay, let's get back to where I was talking to Colm about this. Another thing that you guys mentioned in this book is Lukatsky. he was there, what, two hours and he saw something, right? In the kitchen?
3: Yeah. That was really the beginning of the whole sequence of events because... He was so blown away by, this happened a few feet away from him. This was not something he saw away in the distance. It happened a few feet away from him in the same room of the manager's house. And it was like a device that was a metallic looking device surrounded by a sort of a yellowish cloud. He looked away, looked back, and it was still there. So it was not sort of a, a transient mode in his eye or whatever. He saw this for a significant period of time, and he was literally on the ranch for only two hours. So I've been on the ranch for over 300 days and nights, and the majority of the time, you don't see anything. I mean, I have seen my fair share of weird stuff, but the majority of the time, the ranch is one of the most beautiful, scenic areas in Utah. Beautiful, beautiful landscape. Nothing happens, but it's on that small number of, of times when Stuff happens, but in five out of five military intelligence people from different agencies, different departments, the United States government, every single one of them experienced events on that property. One hundred percent, five out of five. So again, the n is small, but still a hundred percent compared to I would say ninety-eight percent of the time I was on the property, I didn't see a damn thing. By the way, I want to add this: we have
1: a, a smattering of readers who sent us messages about this book. That as they're reading it, the hair is going up on the back of their neck, and they started having weird stuff happen in their house. I don't know if it's a suggestion or, or what, but it would be a great marketing ploy if we were able to say, buy the book, see a ghost.
2: <laughs> <laughs> My mother lives about an hour from me. I have to check on her once a week. I went to go see her three days ago as I'm plowing through your book, and I, I was driving there. And I took kind of a wrong turn and I was, I'm from the town she lives in, but I I don't know it as well anymore. So I was pulling into this park to get my bearings, look at the Google maps or whatever. And right as I'm pulling into the entrance of the park, broad daylight, 12 noon, this healthy, beautiful coyote runs out in front of my car. This is in Raleigh, North Carolina. <laughs> like I had to slam on the brakes and it just ran through. And I was, already, I was in that frame of mind. I was just kind of, I actually tweeted about it to our listeners because some of them were like, oh, that's so great. You know, a little bit strange, maybe not. I was pulling into the entrance to a park, but it's also a fairly urban area. And then the other night I go out to walk our dog and my wife is here. Her father is here at our house. They're inside the house and I'm down the street and I, I would swear to God I heard her call my name. It was my wife, just, Scott, like, come back. I turned around, I was like, yeah, not there, nothing. Nobody on the street. I went back to the house. I was like, did you come outside? She was like, no, I was inside. And so then, am I imagining it? I don't know. Before reading the book, all the books, and starting to understand the phenomenon better, I think I take those things more seriously now than I used to. But I did I want to ask a question column of of you with regarding the contagion. Were there any cases where the significant others or the loved ones were experiencing something before the person traveled home? Or does it seem like it's an actual physical thing where they go to the place and then stuff starts happening?
3: Well, actually one of the first times Axelrod was on the property, he did have I remember I was standing right beside him. He called his wife and his wife did say something about something that had happened in the, and that was before he came home. So, but I I don't know the specifics of that, but now that you asked the question, I do remember standing beside him and he said, yeah, that's kind of weird, you know, when he hung up with her. But, you know, I think the real sort of major, major events really started happening once he had arrived home. And they, the other intelligence officer, Juliet Witt, Also, I spent two days on the property with her. We went back and forth. We had this weird encounter with a creature down by Homestead 2. And again, you know, she was pretty freaked out by the end of the night.
2: So uh, that's obviously a pseudonym. Uh, They changed a lot of names in this. That was part Mm -hmm. of that review process. Also, you know, I have a friend that works at the DIA, Mm -hmm. and one of the things he pointed out to me is that when they or these other agencies review a book for classified information, when they pass the book on and say it's okay to be published, they're not endorsing what's in the book. They're just saying it doesn't have anything in it that shouldn't be released they're not saying everything in here is true. And he wanted to make sure that people understood that. So I just wanted to get that out there. Very good. In the interest of impartiality. So let's talk a little (laughs) bit about Juliet Witt. Uh, This is a description from the book, from page 70 of of, of my Kindle edition of the book anyway. These page numbers fluctuate depending on how giant your font is. All right, here we go. Mm -hmm. Opposite Elizondo, looking suave and sophisticated, sat Juliette Witt, who was known only by reputation to the Bass Group as a superb Pentagon operational test and evaluation analyst and DoD target sensor specialist, well versed in counterintelligence operations. Witt was a veteran of multiple tours in Russia and Afghanistan and was no stranger to the cloak and dagger rituals of undercover field work. Her position at the Pentagon included membership on multiple interagency task forces that dealt with technical data gathering. So her presence in the group served as the tip of the spear for an extensive network of subject matter experts. So in my yeah. mind, I'm seeing Claire Dane's homeland a little bit situation. <laughs> but, uh, but
0: anyway,
2: yeah. this, this woman's been around the block. She's cool in the field. She's not going to have a problem here. She's, she's doing stuff. I mean, hey, what's going to happen here? It's a ranch in Utah. You know, it's, she's
0: a specialist. She's tough in the field. Uh, She doesn't scare easily is what the book is getting at in describing her that way. Yeah. She does not spook easily. And she's seen a lot of stuff in some hairy situations. She knows how to handle herself. And also she knows how to interpret sensory data. That's also part of this is that, That's part of her job, is analyzing.
2: So why don't you share this brief story of what happened with her and Column?
0: Yeah, check this out. Now, this is from page 76, depending. This is the description of what they both saw, which Column was alluding to. After about an hour of uneasy silence listening to Witt's rapid breathing, Kelleher and Bigelow got up to explore the perimeter. Witt protested at being left alone and quickly joined Kelleher as he headed towards the west side of the old abandoned homestead. Bigelow was about a hundred yards south of the pair and could hear the dog several hundred yards away. Suddenly, a cone of silence descended on Kelleher and Witt. The crickets seemed to go silent and even the faint rustling of the breeze in the trees ceased. Turning around, they saw a creature ambling towards them from the south. It was the size of a one hundred and fifty pound pig and should have been making considerable noise as it walked. Yet, The Cone of Silence dominated the moonlit scene as the creature glided past within 30 feet of Kelleher and about 50 feet from Witt. To Kelleher, it appeared the animal had a series of dinosaur like spines on its back and also sported a very large, flattened, beaver like tail. It noiselessly coasted past the pair and disappeared around the southwestern corner of the building, still not making a sound. Even Kelleher, who had spent hundreds of days and nights on Skinwalker Ranch and had already been exposed to his fair share of bizarre anomalies on the property, felt a distinct chill as he watched the surreal animal shuffle silently away. Kelleher looked at Wit, who was staring in astonishment at where they had last seen the creature. Quickly, as if a spell had been broken, they hurried around the corner to get another look at the bizarre beast. Nothing was visible.
2: That's a pretty crazy story, and, but it's right in line <laughs> with the kinds of things that people see out there, which sometimes I think are intentionally weird, because going back to our last several episodes of this type of stuff, yeah, it's like whatever is doing this to you doesn't want you to be able to tell a believable story. <laughs> or there's very strange chimera-type
0: animals like the Jersey Devil just roaming around like this dinosaur shadow pig uh, with a beaver tail. Yeah. Like a platypus type 150 pound kind of creature. But it also, the vibe of that gave me the same chill as hearing the story from Terry Lovelace's book. Remember about the Javelina hunt? Yeah. Or the the wild pig hunt? Yeah. There's something about that that, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Same kind of vibe, chill, creepiness, and being there again for these two seasoned professionals put a chill right down their spines.
1: This is Jennifer from St. Charles, Missouri,
0: and I'm always listening to Astonishing Legends, except now I finished their back catalog and have to wait for new episodes to drop. What am I supposed to do with my life?
2: Well, let's get back to Column here, talking a little bit about the, the aftermath of this experience and uh, a general big picture of... What happens to folks who experience something on the ranch?
3: When she was going home, she was kind of saying, "Well, I think I'll I'll bring a sprig of holly, you know, as a souvenir, kind of thing, or a sprig of heather uh, as a souvenir." So she went home, and then within like a few days, all hell broke loose in her home, and she did not have events happening in her home before she had come to uh, Skinwalker Ranch. But I should also mention there's other cases. We talk about in the book, for example, that biotechnology official that was traveling in Oregon that had the close encounter with these three orbs, or we prefer to call them UFOs because we don't really know what the hell they are, but one of them went through his shoulder. He had a lot of medical effects that were consistent with non-ionizing radiation, but his daughter was in the car with him as this was happening. And one of these things went right past her. She went back to college on the East Coast and all hell broke loose in her home where she shared it with three roommates. She had never been on Skinwalker Ranch, but the same kind of close encounter effect with something that couldn't be explained, she brought back to the East Coast and the same thing happened to her. So this is not just an artifact of Skinwalker Ranch. It happens elsewhere and in relationship to close encounters
2: right so just quickly what he's not saying here uh when we talk to him and what is in the book and you should get the book and read it because it's really fascinating is that mm-hmm. uh this gentleman the orb or or ufo that passed mm-hmm. through him it caused him a, a lifetime of problems just ongoing medical yeah. problems of significance and that's something that i hadn't really thought about i mean when you, when you look back at hunt for the skinwalker and you see there's a lot of strange things happening with the orbs they seem to be taunting people the the dogs chased them and got either singed burned or, or killed in some strange way in that book and then other people are like oh i saw an orb i saw an orb here and da, da, da but after you hear this story you see an orb you do not want it to come near you because <laughs> what happened to this guy was yeah. it passed through his body and in the end it caused him uh, severe medical issues, again, that you need to read the book to get into the details on.
0: Yeah, once again, I know it sounds interesting, and you're we're all pining for that strange personal experience, but this is not a good one, because it comes with ongoing uh, health problems here, and it may sound, like you said, what is the intention here? Is it just an accident? Are these two separate but coincidental things that happen, like the, the orb's passing by, it's doing its own business, and you just happen to unfortunately get near it. And as Column will say here, end up with non-ionizing radiation
2: effects. Yeah, but it was, that's not what was happening here because it was tracking the car and then it passed right through the car. It was not okay. unintentional. Well, yes. I mean, maybe the intersection with the human was unintentional, but I think the overall interaction seemed very purposeful to me. Okay, yes, that's a good point. i would I would say that at first. Again, going
0: back to the discussion, and I think I mentioned this also in Terry Lovelace's part two uh, discussion with some of the stories, is that there is a bit of insight you can gain from this, again, if the experiencer is accurate in relaying this. Let me just read this paragraph from the book talking about uh, what happened afterwards. Uh, within minutes of the incident, while still driving quickly, Becker, that's the gentleman who, uh, with his daughter, uh, had, the, had the orb pass through his shoulder, began to feel ill, nausea, and general malaise, and very scared, too scared to stop driving. According to both occupants, something strange occurred during that time. The 45-minute segment of the trip to Bend, that's Oregon, appeared to take three hours. Again, that's a little aside for me, hearkening back to Terry Lovelace, Missing Time. And Dan Pavanmire and uh, Rich Haddam's wife, Susan Lambert. Yes, not saying anything weird happened to them. They just experienced Missing Time. That's all we can go by at this point. But it's interesting if any of these things are connected. Okay, getting back to the description here. Eventually, they arrived at his brother's house, and because Ron was attending a conference in the morning, he went straight to bed. While asleep, Becker had a very unusual and vivid dream he recalled an unusual face surrounded by light saying to him, Okay, we are going to fix this. While a finger in front of his face applied pressure on his left shoulder. Four hours later, he awoke feeling refreshed and rejuvenated. He then left his brother's house to attend the weekend-long biotechnology conference as scheduled. But Becker remembered feeling dizzy and at times nauseous during the meetings. Shortly after the conference ended, he noticed an intense red rash on the left side of his face. He also noticed that he was losing hair from the front left side of his head, hairline and eyebrow. Becker became progressively unwell. Even his ankles were swelling, and during this period, he reported diminishing visual acuity in his left eye as well as decreasing hearing in his left ear. So what's interesting about this, if that voice was true and maybe it sounds like a screen memory that happened uh, either during the missing time Mm -hmm. while they're supposedly driving, and this is what's interesting, if that technology is possible, they got stopped in a speeding car, (laughs) taken somewhere, or it slowed down and then this other experience happened while they were driving and continuing to drive, this other reality happened to them. And then they're back in the car driving. They just don't remember it. But in that dream, if that's true, or like I say, accurate, then somebody said, oops, uh, sorry about the orb thing, buddy. We're going to fix this. Yeah. Puts a finger up. But it doesn't really get fixed very well. Uh, some kind of like weird pit stop. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, we came by to check you out. Again, I always think of the uh, the red sports car model uh, in Close Encounters that's having oh, fun yeah. zipping around, yeah, you know, yeah. going through the toll booth and all that. The other thing's looking like uh, toys and ice cream uh, cones. This red thing is like, it's just kind of zipping around as an orb. Somehow there was a conscious link, it sounds like, from the daughter who observed the orbs traveling beside the car. And at that moment, they both kind of consciously recognized each other, it sounds like. I mean, who knows? Yeah. But it came zipping by like, oh, let's check this out. Whoops, sorry, actually didn't accidentally pass through your body. Yeah. And there's going to be medical problems. Let me try and fix this. But they could do all this other stuff technologically, but they couldn't really fix the guy. Not right away. So again, it's just odd that you would think that they're so advanced, whatever this consciousness is or this technology is, they can do this, but they're not totally, they can't totally fix you. All right, well, let's get back to Georgian Column.
1: You also notice in the book that a lot of these events are sort of synchronized. Something happens to one person who'd been on the ranch or had an experience. It also happens at the same time to others who are key players. Last week when we had this little flurry of, of minor stuff at my house i reached out to a couple of people to see if it was happening to them key players who had been on the property at least one of them said yeah but i mean colum you could tell the story better about what's in the book about how these things happen at different parts of the country
3: and on the ranch at the same time yeah it's the so-called sort of strange coincidences that happen we talk about the this sort of famous data dump that dr lakatsky did with Two very senior officials from the Department of Homeland Security. And these people were way up in the top echelons of directing special access programs. So they were not used to having three and a half hour data dumps talking about strange creatures and things that go bump in the night and poltergeist activity and all of that. But right at that same time, within an hour or two, in Axelrod's home, all hell broke loose. And this was, you know, several miles from Washington, DC. His son was besieged by orbs the entire night. He actually woke up with physical injuries. So we're not talking about hallucinations. He had like medically serious injuries. I mean, he was brought to the ER the following day with his his mom with flu symptoms and this whole thing. And then simultaneously, all the way on the West Coast, one of the, the lieutenants of the security detail experienced a whole bunch of really intense events in Homestead 2 on Skinwalker Ranch. And we're talking about all of these events happened within a few hours of each other. All of them were mapped to Lekatsky's sort of extensive data dump to these two special access program officials with DHS. You know, the question we asked was, are these completely independent coincidences or were they somehow related all of these things happening in different parts of the country simultaneously. Is that something that a future program to study UFOs could actually analyze and collect data on?
2: There was also a senior military official who said not to be too quick to categorize every orb you see as extraterrestrial, right? Which I thought that was a surprising admission. But obviously, these things that are passing through, even if there's something from a military standpoint that can exhibit that kind of flight these things that are passing through people and causing damage it just doesn't seem like there's any way we're near that level of technology on earth or in this dimension depending on how you look at it but do you think that there's a a theoretical physics explanation for these things and the connections and the and the contagion idea of it and all that because by the way the other things that you're talking about with with regard to Things infecting neighbors—we know of those stories too. We, we know we've, we're closing in on 265 episodes of our show. Some of them are multi-parters, but we've covered a lot of stuff. And we also have people that have contacted us that have, it hasn't even been on the show who are going through things. And it seems like that there's a lot of common ground, completely unrelated to UAP. Sometimes there's UAP, sometimes there's nothing, but it seems like the whole thing is all tied together somehow. And I was—I'm wondering if anybody. At Bigelow, for example, has come up with a theory, a scientific theory that might explain this. It's just that we don't understand yet.
3: Well, you can certainly invoke theoretical physics and non-locality, quantum entanglement. I mean, there's a real, there's a lot of interest in how all of these concepts overflow into human consciousness. At the epilogue of the book, we we talk very briefly about this revolution in. The way human consciousness has been studied, and you know, the, the sort of the leaps and bounds that have happened. And a lot of that evidence is actually coming from quantum entanglement and people like Dean Radin who are who are looking at human consciousness effects on entanglement and on double slip phenomena. So there is a theoretical framework that is beginning to be thought of. But you know, if I had to put money on, on which way. The main sort of gold will be with the UFO phenomenon. I really do think that these advances that are being made with respect to human consciousness are really where the gold is because ultimately, you know, without humans, UFOs can come and go, but it's human consciousness, human effects, I think, are the really the gold of where future programs can be. And, you know, there's a a really significant school of thought now in human consciousness research, which completely turns the whole paradigm for the last hundred years on its head. And it's basically saying that human consciousness is not necessarily a derivative or an emergent property of neurochemical trafficking in the brain. It actually predates biochemical trafficking in the brain. It actually gives rise to the brain and all of physical reality. And these are not sort of flaky people smoking whatever out out in the the back shed. These are people like Federico Fahin, who is like one of the people who invented microprocessors at Intel. You've got University of Virginia, Edward Kelly. You've got Jeffrey Kripal at Rice University in Texas. You've got Bernardo Kastrup, who is sort of a driver in, in this whole way of looking at things, the whole concept of idealism. These people are serious people and the intersection with advanced theoretical physics, quantum non-locality and human consciousness, I think is sort of it's a perfect storm for an advancement in this whole area. By the way, there is another model that was written, Column, you'd be better explaining it, by
1: astrophysicist Jacques Belay, physicist Eric Davis, sort of the the mechanics of the paranormal.
3: Yeah, and actually they published a... A very long-winded paper with the title of "Incommensurability: The Physics of High Strangeness," and it was a very long title. But bottom line is that six-level paper, which they advocate going into every UFO topic, should be analyzed according to these six different levels. That was the underwriting sort of basis for constructing the data warehouse that Jacques Vallée actually designed for OSAP and that the UAP task force is currently using 10 years later. So it's not gathering dust in some sort of uh, warehouse at the Defense Intelligence Agency. It's actually being used. And so we applaud that because we think the amount of work that went into constructing that database during the OSAP program underlies the the entire theoretical framework that uh, Jacques Vallée came up with 35 years ago. In regards to
0: the data and the paradigm of something virulent a pandemic and there's so many connections really an overlay you could say to what we just experienced and are still experiencing with coronavirus in that there seems to be a trojan horse of high strangeness that maybe is like metadata or embedded in the data itself you talk about the data dump that happened And that just opens up. It's like you're getting a little bit of virus with with a contact and the distances and time don't matter. It seems to affect those around it and just kind of spreads. But what I want to ask about is that like a virus or like the one we have now with coronavirus, you have certain symptoms that most everybody seems to get. They vary a little from person to person and there's no all bets are off with an individual's personal health condition and, and what they experience. But there seem to be themes with the high strangeness that comes with a visit and what follows you home in that you have a certain recurring themes. You have orbs, a lot of them blue. You'll have cryptid sightings either there or later at your own home in your own yard. And you'll have something like a cryptid, but also your traditional Native American skinwalker. And you'll have also shadow people visiting you at your bedside poltergeist activity and so when we started our show we tended to look at these different strange cases of phenomena or even if they're just uh, urban legends as being separate things but they seem to come in a virulent package with most people that experience this so this may be out of the the scope of what you want to answer but what's the meaning to all this why why do you get this grab bag of high strangeness or are there any patterns that are noticeable when you look at it from an epidemiological standpoint?
1: You know, we all tried to answer those kind of questions with the first Skinwalker book based on the NID study, you know, all this strange stuff. And again, as Colm said, the ranch isn't the only place where this happens. It happens to be the greatest concentration of these different phenomena that we know of, but this kind of thing happens elsewhere. But when we're at the end of that book and trying to figure out what it all means after the NID study had collected all this information, it seemed like. Whatever this intelligence is that's there is trying to tell us that all these things that seem separate, like separate different individual phenomena are related somehow. That's just us guessing about what it might be is that it's telling us that the universe is far more complicated and mysterious and wondrous than we might imagine. That you can have cryptid creatures and cattle mutilations and UFO sightings and orbs and poltergeist type activity all in the same place because they are all related somehow. Maybe the answer is, as columns suggests,
3: Consciousness? Don't know. Would you agree with that premise, Colin? Yeah, and let's not also forget that the one of the central phenomena on Skinwalker Ranch, going back to the origin, so to speak, are the nuts and bolts craft. The Gorman family experienced these nuts and bolts craft that they saw on the property fairly regularly, and it was embedded in all of this other weird stuff. When Niz went on the property, Two months after the NIDS team was moved onto the property, I was standing outside the main command and control trailer with one of the other NIDS scientists. And right over Skinwalker Ridge, it looked like this jet fighter that was traveling at tremendous speed, was completely silent. I could see it was low enough in the sky that I could see structure behind it. There was a light and it did a perfect U-turn over my head and then went back north over Skinwalker Ridge. But this thing looked like a an F eighteen jet fighter, but it was one hundred percent silent. It was really eerie to see it. But that looked like to me a nuts and bolts object, and at the same time, you know, we were experiencing all of these poltergeist phenomena and all the all of the weird stuff in our surroundings. And then Axelrod in the book, one of the things that he found on the day after that really scary experience he had with encountering the extreme level of fear was he saw a metallic object in the in the distance he took a photograph of it and it's in one of the reports that went into the defense intelligence agency and then we find brandon Fugel, sort of who took over the property he's on the record with saying he's personally seen what looks like a metallic object over skinwalker Ranch. so over 25 year period you've got multiple groups of witnesses from completely different backgrounds who are seeing these metallic objects, but at the same time, co-locating with these metallic objects are this Disneyland of paranormal phenomena. So the idea that they're co-locating, they're happening at the same time, correlation may mean causation. There may be a, a correlation between cause and effect there.
2: One thing I wanted to ask you about was remote viewing. Have either one of you ever tried it? We we have a friend because it's something we've covered on the show before and actually the show that will air after this one who is a remote viewing instructor and she's a protege of Lynn Buchanan and we've done a couple of classes with her just the simplest ones but I was completely blown away by the experience my own experience with a target that I had to identify. I mean, it wasn't great. You couldn't, you know, it wasn't actionable intelligence, but it was, it was way closer than I thought it would be. It's not Joe McMonigle level. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that good, but but no, it's enough that it's beyond chance. It's beyond coincidence. It's it's a strange thing to actually do. Have either one of you ever participated in that, or what what are your positions on, on remote viewing?
1: I have not uh, participated in it. I've reported on it for about 25 years. I've interviewed most of the major players, most of the most experienced remote viewers, the the ones that underwent government training, of course, Hal Putoff interviewed him as well, and you know, and I've had access to some of the documents. A lot of the the material about the the creation of that program and the initial results is remains classified, but it's solid. It works, and yeah. the idea that it was canceled and it doesn't exist in the U.S. government, I find ridiculous.
3: Yeah. Well, I would agree with George. I think. During the ASAP program, uh, Joe Mike Monigal was tasked to remote view Skinwalker Ranch. There were other remote viewing projects that were being run that were actually not reported in the, in the book at all, but I was a part of those programs. I was not participating as a remote viewer. I was supervising the programs, but I have a great deal of faith in what remote viewing can accomplish all the way back at NIDS days, uh, we did have occasional remote viewers on the property as Skinwalker Ryan, So yeah, we've had close relationships, obviously, with Hal Putoff, who has been intimately involved with OSAP. He was very closely aligned with OSAP. He was part of the NIDS Science Advisory Board, I also happens to be one of the judges at Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies in terms of reviewing 205 essays which I'd say was quite a challenge because I was not a, a judge, but Hal Putoff was. So he's been really involved with pretty well every major program associated with Robert Bigelow for the last 25 years. Let me add this just before we leave remote viewing. Of course, one of the premises
1: for the creation of OSAP, that Senator Reid has mentioned us multiple times, is what do the Russians and the Chinese know about UFOs? Are they ahead of us in this kind of research? And in the book, Colm and, and Jim Lekatsky and I write about the Russian UFO program. They had this massive study that lasted 10 years. I was able to bring back some documents about it and, and Colum and his team were able to, to interpret a lot of that and put together the command structure of what the Russians did with regard to UFO study. But at the same time that they were doing that in the early nineties, they had a robust remote viewing program that interacted with the UFOs. They had a team of remote viewers that was trying to communicate with what they called the space intelligence. And they took it very seriously, both the UFO topic and the remote viewing capabilities and believed that those things were interrelated. So whether the U.S. government still thinks that along the same lines, I'd have to think they probably do, but there is an interrelationship there.
2: And that brings me to one of my biggest questions. Getting back to the trickster and the paranormal and and all of that idea, do you ever think that all of this is we're just being manipulated? it's tricking us into thinking all this and all these things that we think we
3: figured out, it's just subterfuge or a red herring. Having sort of been on the wrong end of the phenomenon at uh, Skinwalker Ranch and also during the OSAP, we always knew we were at least one, maybe two steps behind. Everything we did, we knew that was always trying to play catch up with what was happening on the property. If you want to call it an intelligence, you would... Concentrate your efforts on all of the sensor apparatus in a certain part of the ranch. And then the following day, you discover that all of the activity had happened beyond the other side of the ranch, outside the reach of your sensors. Nothing was ever repeated. I mean, the, the foundational premise of the scientific method is reproducibility. And every single time we were looking for reproducible phenomena, We were just completely out to lunch. I mean, we were never able to reproduce any of what was observed on Skinwalker Ranch. And I think there are exceptions to that. You can actually get data over long periods of time. But in the end, are you able to submit a paper for publication in a peer-reviewed journal in the scientific literature? The answer is no. Yeah, I hate to be a Debbie Downer on this,
1: but I'm not sure we ever solved this stuff. You had mentioned, I think the phrase you used was, now that we understand some of it, I'm not sure that we understand any of it. We know a lot more because of the work that Colm and his colleagues have done. But, you know, it's like it's Skinwalker. Just when you think you've figured out one part of it, it does something different. It's totally unpredictable. It never does the same thing twice in a row. And it's frustrating. And It could be that you could have a study there for the next 50 years. And you'd know a lot more and have a lot more data, but still are not any closer to solid answers. Let's say somebody has actual wreckage or a flying saucer or alien bodies stashed in the bowels of the Pentagon or in some aerospace company where the public can't get access to it. Even if you had that stuff, does that tell you where it's from? Does it tell you where they are from, what their intentions are? Could be that we're going to, this is more about the journey than it is about the destination, that it is always going to be tantalizingly out of our reach, I mean, maybe it's whatever this intelligence is, is encouraging us to go ahead and dive in and try to figure it out, even though we may never do that.
0: Well, it's like what we always say about our show and the research we do is that you don't get any better answers, but you learn to ask better questions. It's like we we go on and we understand a little bit more of it, but it's always elusive. Do either of you, though, believe that there is, for lack of a better term, a shadow government or something that's above top-secret military-based organization that already knows much of the knowledge about this phenomenon or is maybe in parity with the phenomenon and even concerning concepts that are unknown to high-level DIA or DOD administration and that everything that we're discussing here and that you found out is for public knowledge and it's only a public-facing front of this quest for answers and that or is this some part of a mechanism for public disclosure ultimately?" If I had to guess,
1: I'd say that there is a, a level above us, of course, above the public, and maybe above the known hierarchy of the Pentagon. There's a group of people who understand this a lot better that may have physical evidence. As Jacques Vallée has said, somewhere there's a giant storehouse of information because the military is the one entity, a group that can collect it. They've got the sensors, they've got a worldwide presence. Uh, a lot of stuff that has been collected, we haven't been able to see. In the book, the story is told about how. Column and Lekatsky and others went to the higher ups. They went to the place where they felt they could get some answers. And they they knocked on the door and they were told to go away. And the door was slammed and basically told, screw off and don't come back here and try to ask again. So there are people who know more than we do. That's for sure. The question is whether they know the ultimate answers. And I
3: I don't really know. I I don't have a lot of faith in that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't have much faith in that either. Personally, I I think If there was a knowledge base, I think it has decayed and eroded over many decades. I think the transition from paper files to digital files in the United States government, I've heard horror stories from several different agencies that this was not very well planned and it was a very rushed event. I think a lot of people have retired and died who were very closely associated. I'm not saying that there isn't knowledge in the United States government, but I think it's a very decayed version of what it once used to be. A lot of the programs that were operating in the 1970s and earlier um, have decayed. I think the focus on the, the intelligence agencies in moving away from hiring scientific expertise in favor of political science expertise in the last two or three decades is having an effect I think there's a whole sort of perfect storm of aspects that decay what used to be. I think there used to be a very intense focus on this topic, but I think now the left hand doesn't really know what the right hand is doing. There are security programs that are still protecting very old stuff. But I mean, what does that mean in terms of how can it be applied to 2021 as opposed to attempting reverse engineering and all of this kind of stuff back in the 90s. By the way, if you bring us back for another program, you'll
1: have to ask us whether we are optimistic in the long run, not only about finding answers, but about the interaction between humans and whatever this intelligence is. I'm not optimistic about it. I don't see it as benign. It has its own agenda, and that's not necessarily in keeping with what human interests are or the best interests of the planet. But that's a big, long conversation. And sorry, guys, you'll have to bring us back.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) We would absolutely, (laughs) if you'll come back, we'll have you back. And this is my very last question. Without compromising your professional integrity, does anybody want to share like the freakiest thing that's personally happened to you on or off the ranch? Like the thing that sticks with you the most, Colm or or George?
3: I guess for me, it goes all the way back to, and I reported on this in, in Hunt for the Skinwalker was That time when we were standing out in the middle of nowhere near Homestead 2, myself and this physicist, and, you know, this thing appeared in the pasture beside us, no more than 70, 80 feet away, the size of a basketball. It was totally silent. We had two dogs with us. They were very, very rigid and very sort of still during this whole thing. And then this thing vanished. It was like silence, Oz effect silence in the in in the pasture we had these very large flashlights with us that lit up the pasture nothing was obvious and then we were standing sort of beside each other discussing what had just happened and this physicist to my left started jumping up and down and he started talking about this black amorphous sort of object that was moving and he was looking at at this through night vision binoculars I only had a camera with me, so I was taking long exposure. At the time, it was film back in the 90s, taking long exposure, trying to get infrared data on this, whatever it was. But he was reporting this thing was moving through the, the trees, which were no more than like 80 feet in front of us. It was a black amorphous mass. And then it was almost like a movie that his, the pitch of his voice started increasing, the pitch got higher and higher and higher. And he just literally said that something had invaded his mind. I was standing a few feet away from him. And really, we were out in the middle of nowhere. The nearest hospital was like seven or eight miles away. And it was like, this is getting into dangerous territory because this guy was now absolutely freaking out, going out of his mind. And then he reported that this thing was beginning to collapse on itself and it had vanished. But Something had literally invaded this guy's mind and he was like babbling at the end of this whole thing. So I felt very, very vulnerable being stuck out in the middle of this pasture. It was like around midnight. So it was like nothing, absolutely nothing in terms of support structure out there at all. That was one of the few occasions on Skinwalker Ranch when I really felt vulnerable and exposed. Because I had no idea what was going to come out of the night at me at this stage. I've had no experience like that.
1: I've been visiting the Skinwalker Ranch and the Uinta Basin for 20 years, for more than 20 years, and it, it got frustrating after a while. I'd, I'd go there and interview people like Colum and, and the neighbors and ranchers and, and hear these incredible stories from ex-police officers and Native Americans, and it sort of drove me crazy. Here I am going to this property all these times, and I don't get to see anything. Do I have bad breath? Is it kryptonite? What's the deal? So I started taking things home. I was trying to engage with it, take little rocks and bits of this and that, bring it home to see if something would happen. And for a long time, it didn't. And then when it finally did, it was at first kind of whimsical, these orbs of light that my wife saw. I didn't see them. And then there were things inside the house that would move around. That still happens on occasion. And then there was one incident that happened to her, again, not to me, that was in our bedroom. And it was not benign, and it was not friendly, and it was uh, highly provocative and menacing, and I don't want that to happen again. So it didn't happen to me, it happened to her, but it was not pleasant, and I really would not look forward to a repeat of that.
2: Wow.
0: Yeah. And again, we'll have you back on. Uh, we'd love to to talk about the implications of these discoveries. and. Thank you for your time here. Scott, you wanted to, you had one last thing to ask?
2: No, I was just going to say, firstly, we obviously want to thank Jeremy Corbell for connecting us. Big shout out to him. He came on the show. We had a blast with him and having him connect us with you guys was huge. We really appreciate your trusting him and trusting us to uh, come on. It's been great talking to you. And also, you want to tell our listeners where the best place to find your new book is?
3: I would say Amazon.com. It's called Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, I certainly enjoyed it, and I honestly couldn't put it down. I read
2: it in two or three days, and then you know, then I started seeing things. So, <laughs> <laughs> keep but up the th- good work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- thanks so much for your time, guys. We really enjoyed it.
3: Thanks. We did Thank too. You. It was really good. Great to talk with you.
2: I already thanked them and I'm thanking them too much. I just want to, it was really, really <laughs> great to sit and talk with them. Yeah. And I do hope they were serious about coming back because I would love to have them back on. Oh, yeah. And ask even more questions and take more time. I feel like for me, this book is really fascinating because they were very intent on getting out there the message about the difference between ASAP and ATIP. And the book mm-hmm. explains that better. If you didn't take it all away from this episode, it's a lot of acronyms and, or, excuse me, initializations to keep up with. But if you read the book, <laughs> I'm and glad you, you do paid that, attention. Yes. Yeah. If you read the book and you do that in conjunction with our episode here, you're going to be able to wrap your head around everything pretty easily. And that's what's really fascinating to me about this whole idea. They're talking about that and the relationship to the uh, two thousand, the December 2017 New York Times mm-hmm. article and disclosure and Commander Fravor and the Tic Tac and all these things that are going on. And there seems to be some kind of connection, not just specifically to Skinwalker Ranch, but to this idea, this is what they're putting out there, that right. there's more to these encounters than just the nuts and bolts thing that you see or the thing that's reported on sensor data, even if that's cameras or, you know, Commander Fravor's FLIR or whatever that object mm-hmm. or camera mm-hmm. was that captured the uh, the device that they encountered. It's more than that. And again, because of HIPAA and also active right. military duty, which I think Fravor's not still active, but, you know, he doesn't ever have to say if he had weird dreams or uh, something happened at his home or things were moving around in his house or, right. you know, we're right. not going to hear that from him or the other people that were involved in things like this, because we've heard from our friends in the community that there are other events that are about as significant as the Tic Tac story that aren't out yet. They're still being vetted or they haven't been released yet. So there's more of this to come. And there's more data that those folks have. And um, we're not privy to that yet. But what's interesting about when you look at Colum's background, his scientific background in virology mm. and understanding all that and how he came and looked at the experiences that were taking place on the ranch and he's interconnecting these with other investigations that he's aware of, he was seeing this sort of contagion that seemed to be connected to those experiences and it would shoot off to other people. We have seen this ourselves with the folks that are in stories that we've covered, including people who we've never aired stories about, Right, right? personal friends of ours that have their family has been having issues for generations. And there is that same kind of thing. It's an associative issue. And you do wonder how that all works together. I was like, what if this is about the experience of messing with the space-time continuum? And and that's a word I threw out there as somebody who's completely uneducated in in theoretical physics. And, you know, everybody says quantum, space-time continuum, fission, fusion, tardigrade, you know, whatever. I'm throwing these things out (laughs) there, but I am saying, what if when you have an encounter that breaks the rules of that, that somehow it gets stuck on you, almost like when you walk through a spider web? And it stays on you until you part with it. And when you go places and sit down, it's maybe it's on the furniture or your loved one, some of it gets on them. And it's so powerful, but in an otherworldly way that it affects everything until eventually that all dissipates. That's what I wonder from this story and all the stories we've covered over the years and this experience of talking to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We said it a long time ago, and I've never thought it more than now and more than after this specific episode, but it is becoming clearer and clearer to me that in reality, everything is connected. It's
0: funny how we get these anecdotes, and of course, we haven't experienced much ourselves personally. But if you listen to the discussion with George and Colum, you can walk into this field, let's say, uh, literally and figuratively as a field of study, and be objective, scientific, investigative, however you want to take it, and stuff's gonna to happen to you or not, or you could want it to happen to you and then later on wish it didn't. But you get some onya. <laughs> you're gonna get you're gonna get some web on you at some point, probably. But let me ask you this, God. It's like the um the description from the vertical plane, remember, and there were several different things going on. It wasn't just Thomas talking through the magic light box to Ken and his friends. There was a six-toed footprint going up the wall, or footprints. That never came up again. And <laughs> it's like, well, what was that? An elf? Like what what's happening? The groceries were stacked in weird poltergeist type ways. The plastic netting on the six-pack of beer got melted. Things got singed. And I believe, do you refresh my memory, if you can, on this, I believe the entity or consciousness known as 2109 was asked, like, what's going on there with that? Is that part of this? And I think the explanation was like, well, that that just kind of happens when you open up this kind of stuff, you create these wormholes or portals or whatever, and then this other kind of
2: weird stuff happens or spills through. Do you yeah. remember any kind of explanation like no, that? No, I, I do. I do it's, remember. Yeah, I don't it's been remember a long the spe- times that I read it. No, but I remember the specifics of it. It's kind of like when you pull your lint screen out of the dryer. Some of that lint's going on the floor. Some <laughs> yeah. of that's just going to get you... on your shoe, yeah. in your hair. Oh, of course, you because know,
0: if you if you had a shaft of sunlight, you would see how much it billows up, but the naked eye under most light conditions won't see it. It's under special right. conditions where you can see the actual reach of it. And it's just, yeah, like you said, it's going all over and you get it's some on you.
2: Some kind of cosmic sneeze. It's a space-time <laughs> it sneeze a, and all sneeze. kinds of things are wrapped right. up in it. This is apropos of the moment, really. So. Yeah. However, I will say though,
0: it's not just that. It's not just accidental uh you get smudged or this can happen too. You spray some air freshener or cologne or perfume in one room and you walk to another room and guess what? The people at the other end of the house can smell it on you because you carried it with you. Right. Even though you thought like, "Well, I just I sprayed a little bit in the air and I walked away quickly." Like, "No, you you carry some, you know, on a molecular level." And so that's happening, but also I do believe at the same time in a lot of these cases, there's another level and layer where it's intentional. Something is pranking you and us and people who go to experience these things in a weird way. And it's maybe a message that we don't understand or it could just be a straight up trickster prank. Like putting the whole, the post hole digger, what was it? 70 feet in the air in the tree? Oh <laughs>
2: like, yeah. Yeah. You know,
0: Back in the, the original ranch. Sherman Ranch days. Is that a lesson? What is that? It's like, or you're just messing with us, or it may be just a, a byproduct. Like, well, we're doing something else, and sorry,
2: that got flung up there. You can get it, right? It reminds me of uh, the improbability drive in a Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's like you don't know yeah. what's going to happen. You know, just like yeah. it's in the movie, but also in the book you read about. it. It's just right. like, well, you know, I'm a sofa. Um, <laughs> you don't, you don't know what's happening. So
0: no, and and that gets to my second and final point here, in that. I think it's a fool's errand and folly to try and think about these things and rationalize them in the old-fashioned ways. And this point was brought up in the discussion, in that you have this old-fashioned nuts and bolts way of looking at this stuff, and I get it. I used to do this myself, talking about a transformation when we first started the show and how we are now when I was much, much younger, maybe in the college days, I was like, well, they're, yeah, nuts and bolts, right? UFOs. Uh, maybe you don't use nuts and bolts because that seems kind of archaic and weird. Maybe they're just like, maybe like a, uh, an Apple laptop, they're all carved out from a solid piece. Something smart, yes. something technologically advanced. Okay. But it's a solid thing, right? That flies around. And it's like, that's an easy and comprehensible way to think about stuff it's also more comforting. Like it's just a machine, right? It doesn't dissolve and get into your soul. It doesn't, it doesn't go through you uh, it, like transmaterial. And, and suddenly now you have uh, radiation effects. It's an easier way to think about these things. And it's something that George mentioned early on in the discussion, how we think about Bigfoot. It's like, oh, come on, you know, look, that's kind of crazy, right? Or some people think Bigfoot makes sense, but UFOs don't make sense. Ghosts don't make sense. You take your pick. The old way I think of thinking about Bigfoot is that people think, well, they can't exist because we've never found a carcass. We don't often find scat or, or certainly nothing that's conclusive, right? So unlike other animals in the woods, Bigfoot can't exist because there's no evidence left behind. We haven't found any Bigfoot bones. Well, think about this. Bigfoot is not just an ape out in the woods. Now, There's a lot of people who, uh, again, with the Wood Ape Conservancy, believe that it's an extant Animal or some kind of species of the ape family that just happened to survive. I'm down with that. That's fine. But I also think that it's a lot more human than we like to think or give credit to, because that freaks us out. That scares us. These things have emotions, and they can maybe they have a, a more advanced ways of communicating than we would like to think, because that's kind of scary. What are they doing out there? What do they want? Are they going to hurt me when I'm out camping with my family? These are uncomfortable thoughts. But if you give them some credit, think about the name itself, Bigfoot. The foot's more human than it is ape. It has human tendencies. So maybe they do bury their dead. We know that Neanderthals seem to care for their dead. They're buried with flowers in in some cases. So what I'm saying here is that Maybe that's not the way to think of Bigfoot. Maybe you don't have to go to the interdimensional Bigfoot, that they're just kind of fading in and out of reality, or reality. But maybe they're more human than we're willing to give credit for. And if you look at the phenomenon in general, on a whole, maybe we need a new approach. Maybe we need to think about all this in a different way. A way that's just less tight, that's a little more... I don't want to say more open-minded because a lot of this takes an open mind to even consider in the first place. And yes, you should apply some rationality to it, but you're not going to solve it that way.
2: That's going to wrap up tonight's episode on skinwalkers at the Pentagon. A very special thanks to George Knapp and Colm Kelleher for joining us, and a special thanks as well to Jeremy Corbell for connecting all of us. We very much hope to have them back in the future. Please remember to support our sponsors.
0: They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John
2: Bolin.
1: Hi, I'm Burley. My name is Jennifer Bennett. Hey, I'm Brady. Hello, I'm Ellen. I understand I. F. I'm La i A. I'm i A. I'm L. A. Utah mountains. Galaxy wide. T. N. T.
2: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and Brandon Schexnader and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone,
0: was composed by Judson Crane and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps.